0: This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.
1: If you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or a concern that someone you know may be in danger of hurting himself or herself, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255. It is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, The Great Courses Plus, Best Fiends, Feels, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
0: It's time to wrap our series on the baffling disappearance of Frederick Valentich. And in doing so, we'll dive deeply down the rabbit hole of possibilities. Our guest, Melbourne lifelong resident, Christopher Tyler returns as we discuss and debate the startling amount of corroborating eyewitness sightings from the very day and nearly the same time that the record conveys Valentich's last known position. We were surprised by the number of UFO or UAP sightings included in the official accident investigation. Some of them were very supportive of Frederick's descriptions that day. At the same time, it's remarkable how many of them are in the official record. However, the possibility of an unknown object interfering with his flight or causing his disappearance still seems to be dismissed, because it's too far outside the realm of what the investigators seem to be willing to entertain. Perhaps when tonight's episode is over, you'll feel closer to understanding what happened to Frederick Valentich. Or maybe you'll find yourself still trying to solve one of the most intriguing aviation mysteries in human history.
2: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I am prepared to swear on oath or submit myself to
0: any lie detector test to substantiate this, my statement. Don Cox, who observed a triangle-shaped UFO for 45 minutes from his yard in Adelaide, 385 miles northwest of Valentich's last known location, just 28 minutes after his
2: radio fell silent. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on the legendary disappearance of Frederick Valentich. And we're back. Boy, howdy. And in this story, like 95% of the legends we cover had so much more to it than one would think. Well, yeah, that's always a sign that it's a good story,
0: but also that... Either people just dismissed it outright or or too soon, or they didn't have the information like we were able to dig up from that accident report. So
2: I don't blame them, but yeah, there's a lot more layers to this. Well, before we get back into it tonight, we have some very exciting news this week, and we've been waiting to share this for a while, so bear with us a sec. Believe it or not, we're trying to keep this section of our show shorter, but we have a schedule change coming up here that you need to hear about. Well, Astonishing Legends is over six years old now, if you can
0: believe that. And tonight's episode is our 201st, or as I like to call it, our 201. <laughs> <Doesn't
2: laughs> I like make it. I any like sense.
0: It. <laughs> Look, I know we didn't make a big deal out of episode 200. Seriously, folks, we did think about what are we going to do to celebrate? This is a big milestone for us. Certainly uh, shows that produce more regularly than we do hit that milestone and then started at the same time we did
2: hit that milestone maybe a year ago. I don't know if the math works out. Yeah, I'm not sure. I feel like we're, I mean, aside from Jim Harold, who makes a show every five minutes, I'm not sure who's nipping at our heels (laughs) here. And he's got seven
0: uh, different shows going on at (laughs) once. No, my hat's off to them. And uh, we both feel that way. We're in awe of the people that produce a show every week without fail except uh, for maybe a few holidays. But for us, we hit our 100th episode and we decided like, well, how are we gonna celebrate that? Well, let's get the Astonishing Research Corps together and our longtime friends who've been helping us out from the beginning and call it Arkapalooza and we'll share their stories and it's a good celebration. It's really, was really interesting to hear from people that we know and their freaky stories. But that was almost three years ago. When that three happened. years. Yeah. And 100 episodes. So when it came to this, we weren't sure what we were going to do. But as the episodes fell or the chips
2: fell, it turns out that episode 200 fell within a series. And it's mind boggling, really. We're, we're closing in on 80 million downloads now, which honestly, we can't believe. The, the point is, we're so lucky to have you guys listening. And for a while now, we've wanted to find a way to introduce more dynamic Content
0: Doves are using uh, uh, business buzzwords here, I see, that test taught us.
2: We gotta lean into it, man, we gotta lean in. (laughs) All
0: right, you want me to lean into it? Here goes. From the bleeding edge of dynamic podcast content, Astonishing Legends is the unicorn you never knew you needed. We hope to disrupt the niche podcast marketplace by leveraging our core competencies to unpack never-before-heard ideas that move the needle and amplify Astonishing Legends' brand by taking better advantage of our bandwidth to grab the low-hanging fruit right in the grapes.
2: (laughs) Okay. All right. The only thing Tess taught us in all of that was the phrase dynamic content. I know. The rest you wrote out for yeah, me. Yeah, I did. That. I did. But I really enjoyed <laughs> making you do that. Oh, thank you. sure. <laughs> but the reality is we try to bring you guys dynamic content year round. Here's the thing. Like so many of our friends were indie. The podcasting landscape has evolved so much since we started. Major players are getting into it now, throwing millions of dollars at shows and concepts and and consolidating networks around them with colossal marketing budgets. We don't have all that. We're still really just two full-time, three part-time people and dozens of volunteer researchers trying to churn out a good show while hoping to improve and evolve it without making any unsavory changes or mistakes along the way. We don't have corporate overlords or advisors, just our instincts.
0: Yeah, and as our collective gut's been telling us for a while, and as we said this past October, we need to look into adding more video content to our YouTube channel and and elsewhere, uh, wherever we can. So one of our projects for 2021 and beyond is to do just that. But we're going to do it on our schedule, ease our way into it. And please be patient with us because uh, as we get our ducks in a row, this may take a few months realistically.
2: The video version of our show is going to be much more conversational and have guests like, of course, Mr. Richard Haddam, who's just finding out about this as he listens right now, and and others as we talk about more current paranormal events that unfold throughout the year. Sometimes it'll be pre-recorded, but eventually once we get our sea legs, we may even be able to do it live from time to time. But we've got some new tech to learn and experiment with until we find the right streaming software and stuff. But the good news is we started looking into all of that over a year ago. So we're not starting from zero. Nonetheless, we'll probably be experimenting a little with things by posting stuff to Patreon and our private Facebook group to start and workshop stuff with the people that matter, which is you. If you have any questions about our Patreon or the Facebook private group, by the way, you can send us an email at astonishingcontact@gmail.com, gmail.com and Tess will help you get connected with that stuff.
0: Yes, she will because she's pretty good about that stuff. And... By the way, even though our primary content will remain free, just as it's always been, the other thing we're going to be doing is ramping up our presence in our online communities and also making Patreon more worthwhile. And to make all this happen, we're taking the main show, this show, back to bi-weekly, which is how we started, so we can have time to develop all this other stuff. And we're still going to be year-round, as we've always been. But we're going to an every other week
2: schedule for this show. Ultimately, we're hoping to produce at least one YouTube or multi-platform streaming show a month. And we're going to release the audio from that show to our main feed subscribers too, which means we're going to have the same amount of content we've always had just now in two astonishing flavors. Meanwhile, the main show will stay the same as it always has, and we're lining up topics for 2021 already. 2020 was challenging, folks, particularly in my household, as you know. But we know it's been hard for everyone out there, too. The whole world has been suffering, but we got a reason to believe that things are going to get better for everyone this year. And we're super excited to take this next step, and we hope it allows us to get even more connected with you, our listeners. And coming back to the point that we don't have a marketing department, really, or a big corporate
0: machine behind us, I want to say something that I don't think we've said on the show in a long time. And it's not something we really bug you about a lot. So I I think it's okay here. Here it is. Please tell your friends about us and leave ratings and reviews whenever you can. And spread the word because even in the podcast world, word of mouth is still king. So every one of you listening to us right now, Came to the show by word of mouth, and in that one ad we did last year in Fangoria, I don't know if anyone saw that <laughs> ad or started listening because of it. I Although it I we had cool. fun making it, yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, you know when we used to ask people to tell their friends about us, we had to throw in a statement about teaching people what a podcast even was or how to get to it. Well, not so much anymore. All you have to say is check out Astonishing Legends and, you know, tell them it's a podcast. The reality is we need to keep growing in listenership to stay afloat in the sea of content being churned out these days. We're an indie show and you're a grassroots audience. It's a symbiotic relationship, and we know that, and we are so grateful for it and your ongoing support of both the show and our sponsors. So thank you so much for that, and please continue to spread the word. We're super excited about this, and we hope you guys will be too. It's going to be a lot of fun. I I hope you're right, because I'm holding you to that. (laughs) Look, okay, back on point here. We're also dark the next two weeks as we start to pivot... Oh, another business term there. Yes, pivot. We're pivoting. She stop it. Just stop it. Okay, it's not well, business. Gonna... I learned it in All college right. basketball, one last time ACC here. basketball. You got to pivot. We're gonna pivot into our twenty twenty one schedule. But after tonight, we'll return on the weekend of February the thirteenth. Whew. Well,
2: anyway, was that enough chatter? Okay. So, where were we at with Mr. Valentich, sir? Well, it's time to talk a little bit about. The possible reasons of what might have happened here, if you're taking the UFO out of the equation or the idea of a UFO out of the equation, you want to first look at, as we'd like to do, some of the more mundane explanations and see if any of them hold up. One of the first things that people talk about is the Cape Otway Lighthouse, which, by the way, just is stunningly beautiful. Look this place up, O-T-W-A-Y. Uh, It's a gorgeous place, Mm. but this lighthouse can be seen from where Frederick was flying. So, of course, this lighthouse and its nature is in the Valentich report, or I should say the report about the incident, and I did want to read a letter about this here. Dear Mr. Keene, in your letter of 12th January, you asked several questions about the Cape Otway light and the Cape Wickham light. The attached sheet tabulates the answers to those questions. Your 10 January letter asks about public access to the file on the missing aircraft, VHDSJ. The Air Safety Investigation Branch of the Department of Transport is charged with the investigation of occurrences which affect or could affect air safety. The purpose of these investigations is to help us all to prevent or avoid air accidents in the future. The material gathered in the course of our investigations is freely given to us on the understanding that we will treat it as confidential and use it solely for the purpose of accident prevention. What follows is this description of the intensity, the range, the characteristics of the lights. not going to read all of that, but the elevation, where it is, latitude and longitude and all that kind of stuff. And here's the thing about the lights. Intensity of the white light at Otway is 1 million candela. The red light, which it has, is 250,000 candela. There is no green. So I want that to be Hmm. clear. There is no green light here or at Wickham. It's white and red. That's what the lighthouses have. And I think that's pretty much what all lighthouses have. There's not a lot of green lights on lighthouses. I should remember this from our lighthouse show. <laughs> but Aviation beacons, I believe,
0: do. The ones that you see sometimes when I was a kid, uh, there was one in the uh, uh, nearby regional airport or the community airport. And uh, it shone off into the distance or, I mean, when yes. I was really little. And I thought it was so magical. But uh, you, you've seen those, that kind of a... Uh, have that twirling beacon. And I believe sometimes that could be white or
2: green. Right. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is it's a warning. The red yeah. and the white's a warning. This is a place you want to look out. The water's treacherous. There's a Cape here. There's bad mm-hmm. conditions. There's fog, whatever. You don't put mm-hmm. a green light there. A green light says, hey, come on over. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so yes. that, my point is that Frederick Valentich is not flying upside down and looking at the Cape Otway light. That's just all right, I wanted right. to say there. Now we know, and we, we talked about this before, he wasn't a great pilot. We talked about the tests that he failed, lying about the failed tests, people saying he was unexceptional, all that sort of thing. And again, the report reads, and I think about this more and more even after christopher has said it is it, it reads like character assassination in a way mm-hmm. and there's things about inexperience that would stack up to an accident of course but other things have to go in with that there has to be a chain of events that contribute to you know that fall into okay where is his lack of judgment being affected here and as we've said the conditions don't seem right for a lot of the things that you might speculate on now granted there was the airspace incident report uh, where he breached the airspace at sydney um, that is in the report about what he did. And he did get in trouble for that. And the whole radio call is in the report. It's like, what are you doing over here? You're not supposed to be over here. And he made a mistake. But it's one of those things where they told him to vacate the area, and he did. There was another incident of a passenger who rode in that aircraft. I guess his name was uh, Peter Artis. And he contacted the investigators to let them know that flying as a passenger in VHDSJ a couple of months ago The aircraft seemed to be a rough aircraft generally and had an oil leak in the governor, which resulted in a light film of oil on the windscreen. The sun shining on this film produced some very strange visual effects. So that's a guy that says, oh, it's oil on the windshield. And it Mm. makes things look weird. Maybe. I can't discount that as contributing to whatever the issue is because that is the kind of thing, and you read about a lot of times with this kind of accident, or again, we talk about the chain of events. There's usually like three things that come together to contribute to the catastrophic failure of some kind. And and that's just across the board with engineering and navigation and all kinds of this. It's usually three little things that come together. So maybe if something else was going on, maybe if this oil was bleeding onto the windshield, that would contribute to his inability to identify what was there. However, oil Mm. on the windshield could also contribute to his inability to clearly see the UFO. Uh, just I'm just saying, <laughs>
0: pish posh. I say, yes, pish now here's posh. Oh, come on. It, it's uh, it, this plane was being rented by other pilots, it was, yes, in constant use, constant maintenance. It may have had that problem, but you would think that other pilots would say, hey, yes. yeah, this thing gets enough oil in the windshield that it looks like I'm, uh, I've taken a bunch of LSD. You, know? yeah. <laughs> you, you would think right. that it, it was so bad to really make you start mistaking lights in the sky for various craft and harassment uh, thereof. It would be a problem with all pilots. Now, if he threw a rod and now there's oil spraying up on the windshield enough that it's uh, more significant than it usually is, he would report that. He would know what was going on. He knew enough about aircraft maintenance, uh, certainly all pilots do enough, that uh, you know when there's a problem.
2: Well, yeah, and it's disconcerting. Oil on the windshield is disconcerting. It's not, it's kind of the thing you you land and you say, there's an issue, fix it. No one should take this up until it's fixed.
0: I've seen uh, oil on windshields uh, spray up a little bit before. And uh, with the sun shining through it, perhaps it's some rainbow pattern effects. Perhaps it looks uh, a a little strange, but not so much that you you think your reality is
2: changing. Well, check this out. Here is another gentleman who sent a letter somehow that wound up in the investigation who said he thought he saw a meteor shower that same night at 6.55 p.m. So I looked this up. This was over on Huntingdale Road, and this is southeast of Melbourne, not far from Moravin, actually, where Frederick wound up taking off from. And this gentleman is driving from Mount Waverly. It's a very populated area, but he saw something very high in the sky to the south, which would be either most likely out over Apollo Bay, which is what Melbourne is situated on, or the Bass Strait, depending on the distance. But he also would have been looking over a small piece of Crescent land, making up the edge of the bay and the strait. So it's hard to envision this without looking at Google Earth or something. So listen to this statement, which is on page 113 of the full PDF of the report. Mr. Farr stated that he was a responsible person, an officer in the RAAF Reserve, and he did not wish to create the opinion that he was a nut. That's what starts. <laughs> I enjoy that. A lot of these start um, off that way, yes. Yeah, I, I am not a nut. At about 1855 hours on Saturday, 21st, October 1978, he was traveling from Mount Waverly in a southerly direction along Huntingdale Road. He observed a shower of very bright metallic scintillations to the south, high in the sky at an angle of about 45 degrees from the horizontal, 1.5 degrees of arc in vertical plane, and 1 degree of arc in the lateral plane. It's very well described. About 30 bright centers, followed by a dark contrail moving from south to north. At first, he thought it to be a meteor shower. That's the end of it. it doesn't say what he thought it to be after mm-hmm. that, or if he later changed his mind. But that is the same night. And this area that he would be looking out at, if it's out over the water or over the strait, it is peculiar, but it's a good bit to the east of where Frederick was when he disappeared. Not a huge bit, but, you know, several mm-hmm. miles or more than probably 10 or 15 or 20 miles. So if it's related, it's not like he was looking at something that necessarily was going on with Frederick, but the fact that it was the same night and about the same time, a little bit later, I guess, that's interesting. Now, in addition to this, on page 230 of the report, there's another gentleman that suggests that it was the Aurora Australis, which is like the Aurora Borealis, but obviously it's in Australia. All right, this was sent in to the investigators from John Mill. Reference the attached article, the following information may be of interest. When coming home about 7.30 p.m. after work on either Thursday or Friday of last week, I watched an aurora australis display in the southwestern sky for about a minute or so. It consisted mainly of successive near-vertical parallel columns of soft pinkish red light moving quickly from left to right and disappearing into a stationary section of similar light. Thus, and then he draws a little picture. Early this morning, I remembered this incident, and it occurred to me that two elements of this display, namely rapidly moving light and stationary or hovering light, were present in the subsequent UFO Valentich incident as reported. Being a young person, it seems certain that Mr. F. Valentich would not have had much direct observational experience of Aurora Australis in its many and varied display forms, which occur frequently over the years. If confronted by a similar display as above, it seems equally certain that the technically trained mind of Mr. Valentich would have rapidly searched everything known except Aurora Australis for a rational explanation of his observations. So this guy's pitching an atmospheric effect of light and was confused by it.
1: Don't you love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket?
2: Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Max Kreitzer. Now, back to the show.
0: Let's go back to what uh, Mr. Valentich actually says himself, which is transcribed, in that it is not a light display. It is four bright white, at first, what he thinks are landing lights, on a craft, which is the first question he asks, is there any other aircraft in the area? possibly military? And he gets the answer, no. Then he reports, it's long, it's shiny metallic, it's shining a green light at me. It's circling above me. This is not the description of a light
2: display. I I don't care how dazzling it is. And that's what happens with these short form explanations. But we go go through them. We touch on these mundane ones. So here's another one. We got an email from a retired uh, gentleman in the U.S. Air Force whose name's Michael, and he actually has what seems to be legitimate experience in uh, the military police and intelligence. He actually said in his email to us that his primary focus was intelligence operations. Now, I don't want to read the whole email, but he did speculate about something that we thought was pretty interesting with regard to the possibility of what Valentich may have encountered. In part of his email, he says, I obviously can't get into the details about classified information, but what I can say is that I served in an intelligence and risk management mission, surety note, in England, Japan, and Korea, and have a combat tour in Iraq. I can also say that there is zero guidance at the installation level for dealing with UFO in the ET sense. There's certainly a ton of stuff in place for interdicting aircraft and dealing with foreign entities that could land in a hypothetical situation and how we would go about handling that situation. I haven't just served at an installation level and have been to a degree aware of national level operational plans. And man, I got to say, there's no planning for a situation with an alien not of this world. (laughs) If there had been, I feel as if I would have been aware of something like that to a degree. The amount of time that goes into planning and practicing responses to something as silly as a drone enthusiast flying a drone too close is baffling. If there was a credible threat not of this world... There would be to a degree planning that simply would not go unnoticed, given the amount of time spent preparing and discussing situations like the one I just mentioned to larger national level threats. Hell, we even practice responses to national disasters, but not once ever for something from out of this world. So, the point he's making here mm-hmm. is that if the government thought that these threats were legitimate, there'd be a plan of action in place for the what if of it. And he's saying there isn't one at all anywhere, and he hasn't encountered them. In his experience, and he's obviously sharing this information on a subclassified way. Yeah, yeah. So, th- this is a statement at which he's saying, Look, you know, if they're out there, why don't we know what to do if they show up? He continues, I do not have any inside information concerning the episode I referenced in the subject, meaning Mr. Valentich. But if someone had a gun to my head, I would bet everything I had it was a special access program originating from a foreign country. Maybe early drone testing of some sort. Let's say Fiji, for example, had these super sweet new unmanned aerial vehicles they wanted to fly near some civilian aircraft to see if they would be noticed and testing of that sort. And for some reason, it impacted the aircraft, and now a foreign nation's secret whatever just killed a foreign national. That's a pretty good damn reason for uh, aliens. Am I right, guys? It was aliens. So he's saying that they might have responded that way and said (laughs) that's a cover-up because something politically went sideways. and. This sounds like something he's speculating on because it's a scenario that he's encountered or witnessed in the past in some other situation, as opposed to being made up. Like, these things happen kind of thing. I don't know. I do think of all the mundane explanations we've gotten, that one is the most intriguing. The idea that, you know what, a military operation got sideways, uh, regardless of where it came from, or there's some other reason that we can't be talking about this. We've experienced this sort of intrigue around the Bet Sphere, for example. What is that? Uh, should these other countries are trying to come get it. Mm. Was there some sort of situation? I do want to say respectfully, uh, Michael, thank you for sending in the email. That is an interesting perspective that I feel it has a lot more validity than the ones put forth by the professional skeptics on the Wikipedia page about this incident. (laughs) Well, I'll I'll give you
0: that. Now I'm really curious to know though, what are these other incidents he might be? alluding to where a foreign national was killed in some incident. And, and of course, they want to deal with it, not through the press or or this and that, but it's uh, uh, behind closed doors and uh, very carefully worded press releases, if any, or essentially a bit of a cover-up. Now, where's this... John the when we need it? <laughs> in this case, however, <laughs> well, it's one of the things that makes this case so intriguing is that we have a live description of what was going on combined with a disappearance mystery. OK, so we have a description of what was happening with this. Valentich, who is a young guy who loves airplanes and flying much, much more so than the average person. So I trust his opinion on aircraft. And and of course, somebody also who's studying military aircraft as much as somebody who wants to uh, volunteer and join the service studying up on these craft and his conclusion at the end of his own transmission was that this is not an aircraft and not that there was any drones back then to compare or that it is some lighter than aircraft or something that doesn't have normal propulsion but the way it was acting to him is like this is nothing that we have yeah it's doing circles around me it's keeping pace it's darting it's toying with me in a way that is impossible for other aircraft and the only thing that he could jump to is that it is some kind of military experimental craft. And maybe it was, but I don't think that that craft would be toying with a civilian in the way that it was then, trying to see what would happen. Perhaps it came from another country, but what other country would have technology that advanced that is beyond Australia? Not that uh, they don't work on those kind of things too, but what I'm saying is that from the description to me, it doesn't sound like that. Not only that, you have a picture of this thing, possibly from Roy Manifold, and that—that's one of the more intriguing things. As we discussed with Chris, to me, is that if you analyze the photograph, yes, it looks like a black smudge, but there's something behind the smudge, and it's solid. And maybe this is exhaust. We don't know what it is that's cloaking it, but when you see it in the photograph, it's a smudge. He didn't notice it with the naked eye there's something going on there. And so you have another piece of the puzzle that you can fit in that I believe is, uh, it it is indeed connected. Is that something that is another technology that some other uh, foreign nation is working on that they were uh, buzzing Valentich with to see how he'd react? And unfortunately, it conked out his plane and he crashed.
2: All right. Well, before we get back to Chris, there is a few other explanations or plausible theories and sightings and things that corroborate what Valentich said happened that night. And we wanted to share some of these with you. They run across the spectrum in terms of time and geography, but a lot of them really line up. So we're going to start first with the fact that uh, Christopher pointed out that Mr. Roby, the flight services officer who was on the radio with Valentich when he disappeared actually had another incident just a few days later. And this comes from an article by Mark Dunn in The Herald Sun. This is dated April 5th, 2014. We'll have a link to it. But I'm just going to read this little section from the article. Mr. Roby said he was working at air traffic control about five days later, and another light aircraft pilot radioed him during a navigational flight above East Sale and reported being passed three times by an intensely bright light traveling at jet speed, coming close enough to force him to land his aircraft. Quote, I jokingly said to the guy next to me, here we go again, end quote, Mr. Roby recalled. That's all it says in the article. There's no follow-up there, nothing else, no other details. It's just one paragraph of an article about Valentich, really. And it's these little incidents that add up, right, for us mm-hmm. when you're looking at stuff like mm-hmm. this. You can't really put your finger on it. Well, nobody has a really clear photo of it. Nobody saw it. The wreckage wasn't found and there wasn't like weird metal found with it. It's not that. What it is, is like a thousand little things that are so insignificant that people don't really look at them beyond the, oh, wow, three bright lights. That guy had to land. Nobody else saw, whatever. That happened to This was five (laughs) days after Valentich vanished. And when you look at that and some of these other things and you add them all together, it does seem like maybe something's up, right?
0: Well, if they're all mistaken, that's one thing. That's certainly a possibility too, Of, of course. If you had a thousand reports... They could all be mistaken identification. You know, some could be outright lies. Some could be just misidentification. Some could be you saw something weird, but it's a totally natural atmospheric occurrence. But the likelihood of a thousand reports all being wrong, and I'm not saying there's a thousand here, but certainly maybe a hundred. There's if you a lot. total up everything going on, I mean, we're going to look at uh, the is not quite that high. Maybe it's 50 If they're all wrong, that's certainly a possibility, but how likely is it that all 50 are wrong? Well, when they're all that varied and detailed of strange things happening, now they all don't describe exactly what Frederick saw or was describing, but they're more in line with something that is not a mundane description of Aurora Australis. I hope that's how you pronounce that. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) uh, we don't have to deal with that up here, this hemisphere. What is now the likelihood that it is something that is not commonly mundane, that is so mundane it's just stars in the sky? Yeah. That if they did see something strange, it was beyond the ordinary. Okay, I'll go that far where it's like it's not something that common that they were seeing it all happening around the same time, all from different people more than five accounts, and not just uh, drunken college kids. Yeah. It's all walks of life. So yeah, it points to me that the likelihood
2: now is that there's something going on that is really not mundane. Well, listen to this. This is from page 112 of the report. This is from a child in a car. This was reported in by John Snow regarding the UFO. He was driving his car on Saturday night. That's the night of the incident. 102178 at about 11:45 in the Barwon Heads area when his 11-year-old son saw a greenish-white of some length flash quite fast across the sky to the north. It was not observed by any other member of the family in the car as it apparently had moved too fast. So this is a lot closer to Melbourne and it's at 11:45, pretty late at night, 40 miles southwest of Moorabbin as the crow flies across Port Phillip Bay. That's interesting, but that could be Aurora Australis, that kind of thing, a flash of green light, that is exactly what it looks like if you look at it in pictures. Right, now something like that, seen by a child,
0: yeah, that could be definitely the southern lights, that could be more of uh, something akin to the green flash that we see sometimes here when the sun ducks down below the horizon over the water that phenomenon. Yes. And I've known people that seen it and say it, it's a little more than just a blip or your eyes reacting to, uh, you know, looking directly towards the sun. There's something to it. Which you're not supposed to do, uh, kids. No, don't, <laughs> <laughs> don't be doing that. But yeah, I've had friends that have seen the green flash, very rare, but they do say like, yeah, it's freaky looking, but it doesn't chase around
2: airplanes either. Well, here's another report from a kid. I love this one. This mm-hmm. is on page 111, just prior to that last one phone call came in to the investigators. A senior constable Campbell of Forrest had a report from some children of an aircraft towing a glider in the Barwin Downs, Apollo Bay area at about 5.30 to 6 p.m. on Saturday, the 21st of October. The report was made because it was unusual for a glider to be in that part of the state. This one really jumped out at me. It doesn't even have any notes on it. It just says mm. subject glider tow. Because to me, this is how a child might describe what Valentich was saying was happening. Yeah. Between this two, this craft is really close to him, it's around him. And if a kid's looking up and a kid is, is not going to know what a UFO is and just say, oh, look, It's I guess it must be a glider if that's something they've seen before. Right. That report, which all it is, is that one page. There's no mm-hmm. other talk of it anywhere in the entire report because they're not entertaining otherworldly Things when they are doing right, this investigation, right. but if, if you look at the report and you read this about a child saying, "Well, I saw a plane towing a glider," which we never see that here. Yeah. Well, I don't know, but to me that seems indicative of exactly what was happening or what he described as happening with this other craft buzzing around him. Well, think about the shape of a glider: long, skinny,
0: shiny, perhaps yeah. metallic. It is what Frederick described later on in his encounter. This thing was shiny, it was long in shape to a kid, you know, a glider has those proportions, long, thin wings, following close behind, often from a prop aircraft that is towing it to get some altitude. So that's a common sight. So uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. That's why I like this report too, in that something tailing uh, a regular fixed wing aircraft, single prop that is close behind, but long in shape, possibly shiny metallic, and uh, it looks like it's really closely trailing it
2: to a kid that could look like a glider. From the mouths of babes. I mean, this child is perfectly describing exactly what Valentich was saying was happening, and it's in the same area and the same time. Yeah. To me, that's pretty significant. All right, this last one is a more detailed report that I wanted to share, and there's a fair amount of detailed reports in the investigation, but this one jumped out at me for a variety of reasons, which you're going to understand, when I share it. Um, This took place in uh, Valley View at 7.40 p.m. This is a suburb northeast of Adelaide where our friend from the Somerton Man series, Professor Derek Abbott resides. And yes, some updates are pending there. He's just been busy with COVID affecting the university where he works, but we stay in touch, rest assured. So this is 385 miles to the northwest of Cape Otway along the coast of South Australia, which is the state west of Victoria where the Valentich incident took place. But this is on the same day and at 7.40 p.m., 28 minutes after Valentich's last transmission. So when you think about this craft, whatever he encountered, if it had continued, and again, if you look at this on a map, if it had continued from roughly Cape Otway on the path he was taking uh, just before he turned towards King Island or was about to make his turn to King Island, depending on where he had his problem, then that would take you straight towards this area that we're talking about, which I think is fascinating. So here's this really detailed report that this guy wrote in. It starts, this is a report of a UFO sighting by my wife and self at 7.40 p.m. on Saturday, the 21st of October, 1978 at Valley View. This was in the sky at a 35 degree angle. On the above-mentioned evening, I stepped outside to call our cat, who my wife was concerned about as it had shunned her due to the fact that we had strange kittens in the house. After no response from the cat, I pondered and gazed in the sky when I saw what I took to be a large plane approaching from a south-southeast direction. The plane appeared to be quite near with what I took to be its landing lights on and colored lights at both sides. I thought this an unusual direction for such an approaching heavy plane, as if it continued, it meant that it would have to cross the flight path of the major airliners heading for the Adelaide airport. My curiosity aroused. I decided to wait and view this plane, which I estimated would be directly overhead in approximately three minutes or thereabouts. To my amazement, this did not occur as it came no closer after having waited a period of some seven minutes or more. My wife came to see what I was doing outside so long and said to me, what on earth are you looking at in the sky? To which I replied, well, look at that. Tell me what you think it is. Her reply was, it's not a star for it's too big. I then asked, well, what do you think it could be? To which she replied, it's a rocket, meaning the firework type. As you can see, the colored lights coming from it. I then said to her, well, if that is the case, how could it stay in the sky so long? I've been watching it for between seven to 10 minutes. She said, no, you're right. It can't be. As the two of us stood gazing in amazement at this large white yellow light, I'm by now an assortment of colors flashing at the two sides. Having got my binoculars from within the house, I focused on this object, but I found my hands unsteady. So I rested them on a small statuette on the patio when I was able to finally focus absolutely clear onto this unexplainable object. What I saw was a large triangular yellow white light as shown in the attached diagram laying on its side with one side of the triangle in a vertical position. Within this triangle, flashing from points A, B, C, and D, referring to his diagram, were iridescent lights. I can only positively remember three of the colors, which were blue, blue blue-green, and orange, but feel sure there were also others. My wife watched it for near enough 10 minutes and myself for a total of roughly 45 minutes before losing sight of it behind a large gum tree two gardens away. During the last stages of viewing this assortment of colors, it transformed into a V-shape still on its side, with the top half appearing to be the reflection of the lower portion, as one might view a boat sitting on the surface of the water. The next paragraph talks about how he reported it to Edinburgh Airport, which I don't know if it's Edinburgh. It's spelled Edinburgh, but in Australia it might be Edinburgh. (laughs) I looked up how to say it, but I don't know, so Edinburgh Airport. And there's a whole paragraph there that's not really of consequence. Then he says, I have no doubt in my mind that whatsoever I witnessed was exactly as the young pilot described who has gone missing and was said to be flying upside down at the time on the 21st of October. I am prepared to swear on oath or submit myself to any lie detector test to substantiate this, my statement. Then it has a diagram, which we'll take snapshots from the report and put this diagram up and his letter and in the diagram, you see the triangle, what he saw with the naked eye. He did a very good job of categorizing this, what he saw with the binoculars, and then what he th- saw with the binoculars once he stabilized them, which he indicated was very specific. And he explains the lights and everything. And the first thing that I thought, I mean, here we are, of course, it's a triangle. Where we got triangles? We've got triangles in Phoenix with <laughs> the Phoenix lights. We've mm-hmm. got poor Terry Lovelace's story. This thing sounds a lot like what he encountered. And yeah. what he described when he came on our show. The TR3B. Yeah. E. Yeah. Three so yes. it's just, I really thought that that was important to include. It's the same night. It's on a path. It's the same, nearly the same time, just a few minutes later. We can't really tell how far away it is, but this guy is seeing something bizarre. So when you take all these reports and some, it's like, okay, it's the Aurora Australis. It's this, it's that, it's the other thing. The ones that jumped out to me in this entire report are the little girl mm-hmm. who said she saw a glider. And this one. These really yeah. jumped hmm. out at me to corroborate what Frederick said he was encountering. Yeah, I'm with you on that. The other thing
0: that we noticed, and I put this connection together, to, it may not mean anything, of course, but I'm not sure I mentioned it on the show. I told Scott as soon as I saw the Corbell documentary on Bob Lazar. And the way he described the craft flying, in that at low speeds or when it's kind of inching along, impulse power—takes <laughs> a Star Trek term—it flies on its side, straight up and down. I believe, or I have that backwards. So I think it's it's oriented one way for slow flight and a
2: perpendicular way for faster flight. Yes, essentially. in
0: this particular propulsion model of uh, of UFO. You yeah, know, talk about uh, a limited number of uh, private aircraft that are available for uh, citizens there seems to be an unlimited number of craft for ufo pilots to pilot fly around if you believe in that kind of stuff but in this case it, it the way that terry described it is that as it was inching along it turned on its side and so the bottom half or the top half was now facing them as a complete triangle yeah and then i think as it got closer then it went Horizontal, and that's when the beam came down and and put the zap on them. Yeah, yeah. Again, I can't remember which way it is, but when it was a long ways away, it turned, and it uh, and from the optical illusion, it could look like it
2: changed shape, or it could have changed shape. I mean, what do we yeah. know? We don't know how it works. <laughs> like, well, no, there, there's a lot is there of reports air? here. Can you breathe? Seems okay. Yeah, that's a galaxy <laughs> quest, but like... <laughs> right. We yes, don't no. know. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know.
0: Oh, no, there's a, so many reports also of these things being amorphous, where they can change shape and split into multiple parts, gather back up again. They're very fluid in a lot of cases. Some, not so much. But here, uh, that's what it reminded me of. So the, we got the Bob Lazar connection to the way it moves, you have Terry Lovelace, and then you have this description, and there's another Terry Lovelace connection I will
2: make towards the end. Before we move on from this section and get back to some of our final pieces with Christopher, there is one other story that we have to mention. Rob Christofferson insisted that we do, and I couldn't agree more with him, and that is the story <laughs> yeah. of Felix Moncla. For this one, I'm just going to read from the Wikipedia page, because there's a lot of similarities between this and what happened to Valentich. On the evening of November 23, 1953, Air Defense Command Group Intercept Radar Operators at Sioux St. Marie, Michigan, identified an unusual target near the Sioux Locks. An F-89C Scorpion jet from Kinross Air Force Base was scrambled to investigate the radar return. The Scorpion was piloted by 1st Lieutenant Monkla with 2nd Lieutenant Robert L. Wilson acting as the Scorpion's radar operator. Wilson had a difficult time tracking the object on the Scorpion's radar. Sound familiar? So ground radar operators gave Moncla directions towards the object as he flew. Moncla eventually closed in on the object at about 8,000 feet in altitude. Ground control tracked the Scorpion and the unidentified object as two blips on the radar screen. The two blips on the screen grew closer and closer until they seemed to merge. Now, assuming that Moncla had flown either under or over the target, Ground control anticipated that moments later, the scorpion and the object would again appear as two separate blips. Donald Kehoe reported that there was a fear that the two objects had struck one another, but the single blip continued on its previous course. Attempts were made to contact Moncla via radio, but without success. Search and rescue operation by both the U.S. Air Force and the Royal Canadian Air Force was quickly mounted, but failed to find a trace of the plane or the pilot's. Weather conditions were a factor in hampering the search. Mm -hmm. So this is another case of this aircraft going out and trying to intercept something and never coming back. Now, it's important to note that the official record on this, the official statement from the military was there was nothing else involved. They just went Mm -hmm. out and were lost. But... You know, that's it's, <laughs> well, they, they
0: went out to look at something. Yeah, it wasn't just.
2: Yeah, uh, why did went they go out up? to
0: intercept a blip? Well, they
2: went to get some lobster.
0: <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't know. It's a fascinating case that we are not going to know if there's any secret details to it. We'll never know. It could be like this, where there's a report, a detailed one, that's buried somewhere, and maybe it'll make the light of day. But it's fascinating, and that yeah, of course they sent out the Scorpion to intercept this thing because they saw something on the radar, and then. There was one thing. So did that get sucked up by the other thing? It's a good question. Was there a craft there that was large enough to consume a Cessna 180? Yeah. That's a good question.
2: Well, it turns out there's this other crazy contemporaneous UFO story out of New Zealand that I hadn't heard about. Now, I'm pretty sure Rob probably heard about it, Rob Christofferson, our friend, but it was completely new to me. So for that story, we're going to go back to our guest from part two, lifelong Melbourne resident. Christopher Tyler. Now, Forrest, tell me this. Now, is this, had you heard about this before Christopher brought it up? The
0: Christchurch incident sounds vaguely familiar, but I certainly not remembered any of it when, when Chris brought it up again. So I was glad to hear it. It's like a whole new story. So yeah, certainly something involving Christchurch, New Zealand, Blenheim, that all sounded familiar, but I didn't know any of the, uh, I couldn't remember any of the facts on it.
2: No, and I started looking into it while Chris was talking about it, and I'll tell you what, it's fascinating. Let's go to that part of my yeah. interview with him.
0: There's a
1: sighting, more than just a sighting, a very famous case uh, for New Zealand. And being Australian, I feel free to claim anything uh, New Zealand uh, as our own. <laughs> right. So on December 20th, 1978, just two months, almost two months after the Valentich disappearance, there's an some Argosy freight planes that were flying between Blenheim and Christchurch in New Zealand. And they claim that there are strange lights following them. So they're radioing the tower and going in Wellington going look there's these things that we're seeing can you see these things now these are picked up on radar they're confirmed on radar and there's various numbers of them during the flights they have the radar tracks they have the pilot testimony and it becomes a famous case these objects parallel track the planes for about 20 to 30 miles while the pilots and crew of the planes could see these large glowing lights just tracking along with them at a distance of about a kilometre or maybe maybe a little bit more. So the story causes a stir. An Australian reporter who's on holiday in New Zealand is asked by our Channel 10 in Australia if he would hire a film crew, interview some crew, radar operators, which he did, and then they're like, well, these are like regular flights that happen. Why don't you see if you can get on this flight and reenact it? Go along with the crew. Talk to the crew while you're on the plane. He's like, okay, I'll do that. Uh, so December 30th, an early morning of the 31st, the Argosy freight plane, delivering newspapers and various sundries, uh, is flying from Blenheim to Christchurch with the crew and this guy called Quentin Fogarty. He's a very well-respected reporter in Australia. So Fogarty, in the flight, is doing a piece to camera while he's in the cargo hold. And the pilot's interrupting him, going, hey, you better stop that and get up here. And so they're over the Cook Strait. And the pilot's going, there's multiple lights now. There's lots of these lights outside in front of the plane. And these are confirmed once again by Wellington Radar. The pilot's saying they're very, very bright with an orange light on top. Or sometimes they turn orange. When they land in Christchurch, the cameraman's like, I'm going to get some better film. I've just got some stock film. I'm going to grab, go to a friend's place, grab some much better film, restock, come back, and we're going to see if we can capture them again. So Fogarty on the tape of this flight is describing this flight as frightening. There are now a whole formation of them. They're ducking, they're weaving, they're coming close, they're moving away, and they follow them almost all the way to Blenheim and they are being tracked by radar the entire time. So every time the crew says there's another one, it appears on radar in Wellington. The crew are adamant that these are real three-dimensional objects that move in unexplainable ways. The five people on the plane are all in complete concord about what they're seeing. Fogarty said, between us and the coast, we could see the coast, we could see the sea. And when they flew down towards the water, we could see the, wa- the reflection on the water. And when they moved up, we could see them between us and the coast. So we can actually see the UFO blocking out the coastline. Captain Bill Startup had 25 years of, fl- of flying experience and had no idea what he was seeing. He just couldn't explain it. They were filmed. There is film. You can see this. This is on YouTube. It's pretty famous. Fogarty was told that he was a hoaxer and a forger, and he was distributing misinformation when he got back. He was so affected by the incident and the reaction to the incident that he was in hospital for a month with nervous exhaustion afterwards. Wow. Various explanations were proffered from Venus, again, our our old favourite, Squid Boat Lights, The Lights of Wellington, one psychiatrist theorised that they'd lost their faith in God and were seeing angels. But no one involved, obviously, is good with these explanations. And the radar operator said it's nonsense. There's no way that they would be able to see these things doing 140 knots on the radar screen, confirming what was being seen. So the film is available. You can watch it on uh, YouTube, as I said. And, yeah, the thing that's interesting to me is this is not a million miles away from Bastrade. It's only two months after the Valentich disappearance, and it is extremely well attested. And the behavior and the description is very similar to what Volantich describes.
0: That's fascinating. I, a couple of quick questions here, then. If you look at the differences in mm. what Valentich describes as first four lights, very mm. bright, then a green light emanating from it. That yep. green light being confirmed by a family on the ground, it seems, yep. uh, is seeing uh, that uh, kind of above a small aircraft, going down at a 45-degree angle. The other difference, though, that strikes me is that, uh, I was going to ask you this earlier, I asked Scott, and if this appeared to him in the accident report, uh, the the flight report, Valentich's object was not picked up on radar.
1: no. Okay. But it may not have been possible to pick it up on radar from Morabin Airport.
0: Uh, I see.
1: So the difference being Christchurch, Blenheim, and Wellington are all kind of in a triangle um, right. where it's pretty easy to track those things. That's not a huge area across the Cook Strait. And Morabin Airport isn't the same as Wellington Airport. Morabin's very much an ancillary airport and particularly was in 1978. It's only really for civilian and light aircraft. Nothing international flies into Morabin. and so when he's out, particularly down the Otways towards King
0: Island, that's far outside the auspice of Moorabbin Airport. I see. Okay, so because the interesting thing to note here then is that uh, in one case, it could be picked up on Raiders. That's what you're saying about uh, this uh, Bledham Christchurch light sighting, Mm. is that it was tracked on Raider, correct? Absolutely, yeah. I don't know if this is the same. Uh, object or craft or phenomenon
1: look the commonality is they unexplained lights behaving in a weird way they're kind of buzzing the aircraft they're coming close they're moving away they're sort of almost in a playful kind of fashion mm-hmm. which is you know similar to what Volantis describes there's certainly no green lights uh, there's no four lights as, as in like a landing light he described but I mean that could have been four separate. Objects, I guess. I don't know. I'm now. I'm now speculating. Yeah. yeah no. No. I apologize.
0: Uh, no, but uh, well, we're all speculating here, of course. But what I would say is, all three of us having looked into different types of cases, is that there's a lot of descriptions of sightings where the craft itself or the phenomenon itself changes shapes, mutates. lighting changes, uh, Mm. mutates in a way. Yeah. And, and that uh, that's not to say that this isn't the same object or operators behind this Mm. is that it's just a different configuration of the visual array uh, Mm. that they're seeing. So yeah, it's not to say that they're, they're totally different and to say that, uh, well, there you go. It's uh, it doesn't connect the It may very well. I think for me, the connections are in distance and time. So we're
1: only two months out. There's been a lot of UFO sightings in those two months. As we said, the radio operator in Melbourne, uh, sorry, the control tower operator in Melbourne said there was another sighting five days after the Volantis disappearance. So we have a sort of continuance of sightings. And then just two months later, we have this huge sighting, really. Like, this is a big thing. And, you know, as we know, uh, New Zealand's not a huge amount away from Tasmania. And Australia, to me, that's what connects them. They may not be connected. They might not be. But I think it's too interesting to leave out of the story.
2: I didn't know about this story. I looked it up uh, while you were talking about it. And I saw the clip, Quentin Fogarty's clip, the original Mm. one. I can't hear it with the audio because we're obviously we're interviewing and talking. But the remarkable, stunning thing about it is that towards the end of it, they've uh, selected a few frames of it where it shows this craft took a particularly crazy short course that On wound up a single up, frame of film yeah yeah in a single frame that looks like an ampersand mm. basically mm. which is a hyper example of non-ballistic motion mm. and what i love about this and you know obviously we'll share this with our listeners so they can see it too but what's fascinating about this is um think of yourself as Valentich trying to describe this pattern of flight to a mm. traffic controller or you know yeah like how do you even That's why he's, you know, it's orbiting, I'm orbiting, it's orbiting me. You can't describe, I mean, in this, the only reason we're able to describe this is because we freeze-framed a single frame of film here. So how do you even describe that? Now, of course, there's obviously some motion that would be due to the camera being locked off and no image stabilization and all those other things.
1: Yeah, and being on a plane.
2: Yeah, and being on a plane, but still, it's clearly doing something that anything that is man-made could not possibly do. And the
1: crew describe the motion of these objects. And they talk about them moving up and down and back and forth in a way that is, dare I say, reminiscent of a certain Tic Tac video that we're familiar with. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, so you have the film, you have the corroboration of the crew, you have the corroboration of the radar tracks, even in itself, even without any kind of link between this and Frederick Velantage, this is a fascinating. UFO story. But
2: the fact that they're less than two months apart is pretty shocking and geographically not that far apart, especially if you follow with my theory on these things, which Forrest knows where I'm going with this. I don't think if these things exist, if you believe any of this at all, I don't believe that these things are necessarily interstellar. I think it's possible. I mean, there's the whole interdimensional thing, but I think if you want to go more physical and basic, I think it's possible that they live under the ocean. If you want oh. to go off the deep end with me <laughs> so
0: the, oh, and that's, yeah.
2: that's their locale is down there near where you are.
0: It's a real John Wyndham, the Kraken wakes scenario for you.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly.
0: <laughs> Scott loves the ocean naturally, but that motion, okay. Because you have to think about it and somebody that sees that, who possibly does not understand um, motion picture film and how it works, of course, Mm. it's the persistence of vision phenomenon that happens optically with a human sight where you're seeing a series of still photographs, essentially, in succession, and it appears to be in motion. And so for something to make that, uh, let's say they were uh, shooting at 24 frames per second, in one twenty-fourth of a second, it makes that crazy ampersand Mm. motion. And when you're watching the film, you may not even pick up on it. And what it reminds me of, I don't know if you you two have, uh, I've urged Scott to see this, but it's a, a great documentary about the uh, ongoing for years sightings by a woman named Dorothy Izatz in Vancouver, I believe, uh, Canada. So on the west coast of Canada, where she for years had taken Super 8 footage of crazy lights that would appear to her. And of course, uh, Super 8 was probably shooting at about 18 frames per second, for non-sound and uh she just had a camera who was continually filming these things and if you freeze on one of these particular still frames from the footage it does that kind of motion where it's like you don't see it as the film is playing but if you stop it there is uh definitely patterns like that and one of the most crazy things if you're willing to go with that is that in one case it looks like it spells out her name dorothy in cursive It sounds insane, I know. But yeah, that's a totally different uh, from what we think of nuts and bolts craft, even alien aviation technology. And that's, I agree with Scott, something else is going on here. Hmm. When you see it, in fact, even in the documentary, as they're interviewing her, there are lights unexplainable lights outside her window moving around, you know, miles off in the horizon. But as, so what we're talking about here is that there's something going on that may involve something solid with just unheard of properties that don't sound like anything that we would even imagine as a uh, as a saucer' shape with a, a glass dome and you know three little green guys inside. Mm. It's uh, something way off the charts here. And uh, definitely the only th- connecting thing is that you have a radio communication. On record you have a photograph on record you have numerous on the ground sightings by various people at different times unconnected all around the same time frame and so there's a big red yarn connecting all this stuff which is why to me it's one of the most fascinating cases ever of uh, a ufo flap or incident
1: yeah i agree and no i'm not just saying that because i'm australian i want interesting things to happen (laughs) sure Uh, (laughs) of course
2: I'm Kevin Jokila, and you're listening to
0: Astonishing Legends, number six in the top 20 podcasts in the afterlife. Let's get back to the show.
2: All right, we're getting down close to the end here. We want to talk about our theories and conclusions. But before we do that, we did want to talk to Chris a little bit about it, what his ideas were about why Valentich might have chosen to take his own life or abscond with the plane or what other reasons, you know, because those are the other theories that have been put forward. He made this all up. It's a hoax. And it's interesting to hear about it from uh, somebody's point of view who actually lives in the area.
1: And I mean, it did strike me, especially as the the report that we're talking about basically eviscerates his character. It doesn't come to a firm conclusion that he was misleading or he committed suicide or anything in particular, Mm -hmm. but it does kind of go this guy was a liar, this guy wasn't reliable, this guy was not, you know, someone, he was a UFO believer and therefore this and, like, you know. I just wonder, he clearly wanted to be a pilot. And, you know, when it talks about how he failed his exams, I wonder that he didn't tell anyone he failed because he didn't want them to say, okay, well, it's time to do something else. Because if he said to his girlfriend or his father or his mentor, okay, I failed these commercial pilot's exams, they might have gone, all right, well, it's time to just give up on that dream. And he clearly wasn't ready to give up on that dream. Right. And I wonder how many people have lied about passing the exam or like getting to the army or getting a job when they're 20 years old, and it's totally fine because they don't disappear. Right. You know. Right. And their families question them or laugh about it 20 years later. I remember that time when you said you'd passed that exam and you didn't. Uh, you know, yeah, I don't know. I, like, I, I used to work with uh, very long-term unemployed. And uh, I was in what we call a job service agency, which is kind of like a, where you go to get assistance getting a job. And uh, I was a coach there. These guys walked in in like complete Telstra linesman uniforms. So, like a national telephone provider is called Telstra. And it's like basically they're ready to go out and work on telephone lines. And there's five guys wandering in, and uh, I'm like, "Oh, is there something wrong with the phones?" And like the person next to me is like, "Oh no, that's the linesman." I'm like, "Oh, who are they?" He's like, "Well, they lost their job five months ago. They haven't told anyone. They still get to dress and go to work, as if they were going to work. They haven't told their families. They're just here looking for other work, and hopefully, they won't need to tell their families. Mm. That's their idea." Right. Wow. Because the shame of that, and the so the the disapproval they might face. And these are adults. I mean, when you're 20, everything that happens to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Right. Or the most important <laughs> thing that's ever happened to right. you. <laughs> sure. And um, he doesn't strike me as suicidal or mad or manipulative. I think there's just some things we do not tell others and we lie because we feel the truth isn't good enough. I could be wrong, but that's that's how I feel about it.
2: No, I, I agree with you about that. I, I kind of came to the same point of view. Although... And I, I guess you're right. It's interesting what you said about the report eviscerating his character, because I I thought it was not that hard on him as much as I thought it was objective. But I, now that you're saying that in hindsight, I think you are right. It is more, I mean, it's hard to know what the personalities of the five investigators were like. You know, they wanted to get to the bottom of it, accident prevention, all that sort of thing and mm. be clinical about it, but, you know, there's going to be uh preconception to whatever they bring into it and, and confirmation mm. bias uh, with regard to the investigation. Certain ones will probably be looking for certain things. I guess my takeaway was, yeah, it didn't make him out to be, you know, there was all these remarks about how he was unexceptional or average and Uh, not super driven. Low IQ. Yeah. I Mm. didn't see low IQ, but like, I guess that's the implication. Mm. Yeah. Because they, you know, all his grades weren't great and he was failing all these tests. But, you know, I've, I've had friends in life that have similar backgrounds who went on to do great things. And I guess that's what I thought about. Mm. And I, I admired his determination with lying about the tests. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of reasons it's, you know, it's embarrassing or it's like you said, it's pride Mm. or you don't want to give up or you don't want to admit it to yourself or you don't, There's so many different things about it. I think, you know, lying to your partner, you know, your girlfriend that you're enamored with is a different thing from, and and to the mentor who's trying to help you study, it's like, you don't want to let people down. And if you think you're going to come back and pass it later, you can say, oh yeah, well, actually the first time I didn't make it, but now I've really got it or whatever, so... I don't think it actually provides a lot of insight into what happened that day, based on the other factors. That's I think my take.
1: It doesn't sway me one way or the other. It's certainly not concrete evidence that this is a hoax. Yeah. It's just not. Yeah. It doesn't prove anything happened. Yeah. But it's not good, solid evidence. Going, oh, look at this guy. He, he, you know, he's clearly not reliable. Right. I think that's the opposite of what we discover when we delve into his life. Right.
2: What is your opinion as a local and somebody who looks into this kind of stuff? I mean, you've already said you don't know what happened, and I'm not, I'm not sure that we do either, but mm. do you lean a particular way, especially walking the fine line that you indicated that you like to walk between skepticism and belief? Where do you come down on this?
1: I think that there are three possibilities in reality, and that is that he was lying, which I don't think he was, mm-hmm. that he was suicidal mm-hmm. or hoaxing, and then something terrible happened, mm-hmm. I think no matter what happened, no matter which way you go, something terrible happened Mm -hmm. to him. I don't think he was suicidal and I don't think he was hoaxing. So I think something genuine happened to him. Now, I don't know what that was. He could have been mistaken with what happened and he crashed. Mm -hmm. I think that's, in all likelihood, the most likely explanation, but it doesn't explain... There's no explanatory power to that. There's just no, uh, it doesn't give you what you, a whole picture there. Yeah, I I genuinely don't know. But my inclination is to believe the case on its face that he saw something weird that he didn't understand that made him anxious and agitated and particularly after reading that transcript, that's definitely the sense I get. And that uh, he, whatever happened he was genuine with his report.
2: If you had to make a, a call of some kind between whether or not the aircraft was somehow consumed or dispatched from our reality versus just had a collision or a problem and went down with no trace, where would you come down between those two choices, you think? And we won't hold you to it. I don't, th- I know that's I don't a- think it's... <laughs> no, no, I know.
1: Leading the witness. Yeah. I don't think there's mutually exclusive things there. I think he can have seen something extraordinary. Mm-hmm. That freaked him out Mm. and then something happened to his plane, Mm. possibly because of what he saw and that he crashed into the sea. And I think that's not unlikely. I mean, but look, there's part of me that wants to believe or maybe doesn't want to believe that uh, uh, something extraordinary happened to him, like truly extraordinary. And I think in this case, it's the most likely case we have that that's that happened. I think it really all the facts that we have that we know kind of feed into that.
2: Chris Tyler, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate you uh, giving us your time and some local flavor on it. And um, oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's just been a blast, and we hope we you know if you want to come back sometime. I, I take it your podcast you're no you're no longer an active podcaster, is my understanding.
1: I just don't have time for it because yeah. I'm actually doing a lot of voiceovers for universities as well. Oh, okay. So if you if you if you're currently oh, doing a nursing cool. course in Australia, you might recognize
2: my voice. <laughs> well, there you go. So we could send our listeners if they want more of you, we'll direct them to the nursing courses. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks again. Uh, we really uh, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show.
1: I'd love to come back if you've got something relevant. Absolutely.
2: All right. So uh, we'd like to thank Chris for coming on. We do have one little Mm -hmm. uh, brief statement from him coming towards the end of the very end of the show here. But also, we did want to mention, we we actually didn't use this part of the interview in the show, but he did back up the fact that the negative analysis, the the manifold picture of the object on the beach, he did say that it went to the States for analysis, and Mm -hmm. it didn't come back as having been doctored or anything like that. If you want to hear the full interview with him, that is more or less unedited, just cleaned up, just a straight full interview that we did with him. You'll be able to get that on Patreon uh, very shortly without having us interrupting and doing all the stuff that we're doing here in the main feed. It's so, <laughs> uh, more of a, a naturally flowing conversation. Yes, yes, a much more naturally flowing conversation. But hey, we're trying to keep it interesting. <laughs> but it's time to get down to some of our final conclusions here and our thoughts. Uh, Forrest, do you want to start out here? Well, one of the,
0: the big breaking points for this case and for our story here and for UFO researchers and enthusiasts everywhere was the revelation in 2012 of what you were just referring to for most of this show, the 315 pages of accident uh, report, right? Yes. So we owe that to Mr. Keith Basterfield. And there is an article that we referenced earlier from The Advertiser, which is the newspaper in Adelaide. And it's called, Truth Was Out There After All. An accidental discovery sheds new light on the mysterious disappearance of a pilot in 1978 writes Miles Kemp. And Miles Kemp is the journalist who wrote the article here. So again, that's from July 6th, 2012, 11 p.m., I guess when they posted it, from the advertiser. So just a few interesting points here towards the end of the article, which I think are worth mentioning here. So as Mr. Basterfield said, the aircraft serial numbers from the wreckage, from the cowl, those fall within the serial numbers for Valentich's plane. And you can almost eliminate the theory that the pilot staged his disappearance on the way to King Island. If he did, he was not successful. Yeah. So that also cancels out a lot of the public speculation at the time that it was a hoax disappearance. Something else to note here is that in the 315 pages, there's really nothing that suggests it was a hoax disappearance. That's right. Something also to keep in mind. And again, this is the, the official report here. So Basterfield also says, according to Miles Kemp's reporting here, that the transcripts and notes of the extensive interviews that were done from people who knew or related to Valentich, doctors, colleagues, the viewpoint of virtually everyone eliminates the possibility of suicide. Nobody said, well, yeah, I can kind of see that maybe
2: with him. He seemed kind of down. He wasn't despondent. He didn't have a ton of debt. The only thing they can point to that even remotely comes around that way is like, well, he didn't take the clothes to go out on the date. He gave his girlfriend the anniversary ring a week early. He okay. wasn't getting lobster. He, <laughs> all of that stuff.
0: I have a possible explanation for that, if you'll okay. hang with me here. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course I uh, Well, again, from the article, as Miles says, most significantly, the investigators leave the possibility of a UFO encounter open. Who does that? Certainly not many people in the U.S. Now... We're starting to see a little more of that. But as uh, Miles writes here, uh, Mr. Baxterfield points out that it was investigators, not Valentich, or the media, who took the pilot's description of the object and labeled it an unidentified flying object. Think about that one. Yeah. Valentich never said, oh my god, it's a UFO! That's right. He didn't ever say that. He leaps to the more logical conclusions if you want to. That,
2: is this a military
0: aircraft? What's going on? Is there that's any aircraft? That's a good point. Voice? And I even
2: read that article and didn't take that out of it. That's why it's good that you and I both read things sometimes. Because <laughs> <laughs> we both forget things sometimes. Well, yeah, but also we have different perspectives and that's a really that's valid thing to pluck out of that article. He didn't say UFO. He never said the word UFO. No. And he's supposed to be obsessed with UFOs, you know?
0: <laughs> well, that's, yeah. you know, what's funny is I was reading these blogs and you could see that the UFO researchers and enthusiasts who are into UFOs, like, like we are, we're, Interested in it, certainly. They know a lot, lot more about it than we do, but you can kind of see that they don't mind saying that he was a UFO enthusiast, I think, because they are also UFO enthusiasts. To them, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. So they can say, like, well, yeah, he was really interested in UFOs, but also this happened. It wasn't, it happened because he was a, a UFO enthusiast. Right. Mutually exclusive things they don't have to be. You know know what I'm saying? It's like uh, one does not have to go with the other and that, well, there you go. That's why he saw it. Well, some people think that. Perhaps uh, Joe, uh, Mr. Nickel here coming up as one of his reasons. But anyway, going on with the the Miles Kemp article here, UFO theorists also will uh, take heart in one document on the file. And I'm reading uh, the passage here from the article, uh, which shows that for the first time, The head of the transport department took the possibility of a UFO encounter so seriously, he suggested his minister, ask the defense minister to launch an investigation into the possibility. That's pretty official. That's a pretty official recognition of that. Yeah. Yeah, Yes. That's what uh, Mr. Kemp is saying. Is like, geez, if you are open to the possibility of UFOs, you'll take that to heart in that somebody believes in it. In an official capacity, that's right, enough to suggest it to the defense minister. So, and this is a quote from Mr. Basterfield saying, I have read about 20,000 pages of government reports on UFO files, and I have never seen such a suggestion. So, there you go. That doesn't happen very often, I think, is what Mr. Basterfield is saying. The other thing that was interesting about the article, though, I I did see it where it says uh, he does not believe in UFOs, Mr. Basterfield. (laughs) And I thought, like, I mean, he may be very, very skeptical and interested even more skeptical than our guest, Chris, but just really interested in government reports about it and following up on threads. But I thought he was more interested than what was described in this article, or maybe that was a misquote. I don't know.
2: What I could get from that article, and also I read a bio page on Mr. Basterfield, was just he's interested in tracking things down like we do. But yeah, he comes from a more skeptical viewpoint, but he enjoys the thrill of figuring out the mystery, getting to the bottom of things, right. really digging in and doing the research. It's very cool. I would I would love to talk to him at some point, actually.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I think uh, we all have a little bit of that. That's why we're uh, doing this and listening to it. Here's another comment from Mirage Man, who we've mentioned on the above top secret forums, talking about this. The analysis also notes Valentich's calm and matter-of-fact voice transmission, as he describes the other aircraft, In his vicinity. It even hints that he may have planned to disappear. Mirage Man here is talking about the tone of the report. Yes. Commenting that had he maintained his flight path, then wreckage of his aircraft would have been spotted between Cape Otway and King Island when search and rescue operations had failed to turn up any evidence that his plane had crashed. So, what he's suggesting here is that, okay, if he planned to disappear and didn't make it, obviously there's no reports of him showing up anywhere else with a plane landing, yeah. as we've said before, those things are, well, electronic fog. They know when you land. They know when you take off. There's people there, unless yeah. you have your own private airstrip. right? So he didn't show up anywhere else. And if he'd stuck to his flight path, well, then his record should have been found there.
2: Yeah. And another thing that's interesting uh, that we actually wound up cutting from this show, but it will be in the full interview with Chris on Patreon, was that he was talking about, because he did the voice for the recording that we had in part one, Uh, where we did our reenactment of the transcript of the radio call. Mm -hmm. And he made some very poignant observations about once he started trying to portray Valentich and saying word for word what was in the transcript, it kind of struck him in a way that he hadn't been struck before. And you can yeah. hear that in the full interview with him, which we'll get on to Patreon as soon as we can after this show goes up. But I didn't necessarily want to cut that from the main show, but it was cut right. for time. Yes, we yeah. do in fact cut things for time, believe it or not. But
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> just to keep it just to keep it slightly <laughs> under six hours yeah, or yeah. five.
2: So but I, I thought that was really interesting when he brought that up to us. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, here's what we're talking about is that it's considered in the report that maybe he planned to disappear. So you could say, okay, he gave him a flight plan, said he was going along this path, but tricked everybody, deviated off that, maybe crashed, because again, he didn't pop up anywhere else, maybe crashed accidentally. And that's why he wasn't found
2: or his wreckage was found, because it wasn't anywhere near where he people thought he should be. Right. But there's only a certain amount of range he could get to and have a conversation with FSU, with Roby at uh, Flight right. Services Melbourne because remember, King Island was closed. So there was a finite area that he would be able to stay in radio contact. And you have to have, that. that's not a perfect circle. It's a chart that has all kinds of factors relating to geography and the height of probably the positioning of the radio towers and that sort of thing that he wouldn't have had access to, which was pointed out in a forum or somewhere. I can't remember where I saw that, but the point was that it's not exactly a perfect circle, and so he wouldn't have known how far he could go in what direction before he would lose contact. So the fact that he was in radio contact with FSU Melbourne means that in terms of disappearing, he couldn't have gone that far. This is not like MH370 where you've got a 777 loaded with fuel and you want to disappear, you can get halfway around the planet. That's not what's happening here. Yeah, he's got limited choices here
0: right. on where to go. It's also not a seaplane. Exactly. He's got to land on land. So that's what they're describing here in this scenario. And the other thing that uh, may not be, uh, well, it could be a mischaracterization was the quote-unquote matter-of-fact aspect of his voice. Steve Roby, the uh, air advisor, and everyone else that we've read who's actually heard the transmission. There are other people who have heard it. Uh, as we said earlier, that it could be just a, a bootleg tape of some kind. But people who have heard it all say, yes, he's keeping it together, but he's definitely worried. I mean, he's trying not to freak out. He's not tripping on LSD, which is uh, would be possibly another explanation for this, which people have proposed. But not the kid that immediately turns <laughs> in people who are doing drugs. <laughs> well, there you go. Maybe somebody dosed him. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. You'll yeah. get all kinds of comments like, well, maybe he didn't know. I, you know whatever. It's yeah. in the crayfish. Uh, he had crayfish poisoning. He's going nuts. The thing is... Uh, as it's described here, they all say that he sounded very concerned and confused in that he didn't know what he was seeing, not confused about where he was going. That's another explanation. It's like, well, he was way off course. He just got totally disoriented and that's why they can't find his wreckage. He knew where he was going. He was on track. He just didn't know what he was looking at because it wasn't like anything that you would normally see in the sky, Aurora included. So, Scott, I think before you actually read the A, B, C, D, E to D uh, conclusions from the official report, it's a good thing to keep in mind. This is a time when officials from aviation authorities in Australia were open to considering the possibility of a UFO interfering with Valentich's plane. So take it away.
2: All right. So this is from page 110 of the PDF of the 315-page report, which is actually 319 pages because it has some additional images. And I want everyone to keep that in mind. When I'm citing the page numbers throughout this, uh, people that look at the transcript and all that, remember that there's a four-page variance between the actual PDF document of the report and the report itself. But on page 110 are the official plausible explanations based on this investigation. that took years, by the way, and as you can tell from listening to our show, it was very thorough. There is an A, B, C, D, and E I'm actually going to read them backwards because it's a little bit more <laughs> interesting. But there's also another reason for that here in a second.
0: So yeah, it's it's more dramatic, but it also tells you their number one, one the top cream, <laughs> yeah, cream of the crop. Uh, conclusion is the most dramatic one.
2: The statement here it's numbered ten on uh, multiple pages of report information. It's just a little summary at the very end. In the absence of any further concrete evidence, one can only suggest a number of hypotheses to explain this disappearance. Again, I'm starting at the bottom. Letter E. Crash elsewhere when attempting D, and the wreckage has not yet been discovered. D, successful landing elsewhere. Perhaps Valentich was not where he said he was, and he landed in a remote location, keeping in mind the radio coverage that I mentioned a few minutes ago. So they're saying maybe he tried to land it elsewhere and was successful, and just never came back. Although after all these years, that's highly unlikely, because somebody would have found the plane. It just just doesn't seem likely. And then uh, the other possibility being that he was trying to do that, and he crashed. C, a controlled landing on the sea with the intention of escaping from the aircraft before it sank. This could have been successful or not successful. In either case, no wreckage would be found. And in the latter event, the body could still be in the aircraft. So the suggestion here is that if it was a controlled landing, the plane wouldn't have come apart necessarily. Maybe not Mm -hmm. an oil slick, maybe nothing. It just lands and it sinks and he goes down with the ship and that's why they couldn't find anything. Mm. B, disorientation. At the place and time of the occurrence, this is a distinct possibility and even probability. On the other hand, it would have resulted in uncontrolled impact with the sea, and one would have expected wreckage to result. Again, I don't agree with them. I'm not a flight accident Mm -hmm. investigator. I don't think that the disorientation is as viable as they appear to think. Yeah. Yeah but I don't know why anyone would side with me over professional accident investigators. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> well, uh, I just, hey, it just doesn't uh, seem likely to me. I, I don't know why. Right. And, uh, having read the whole report, top to bottom, I don't even know why they're saying that. Because well, they didn't really...
0: No, I, I get it, but it's a... I uh, mean, just based on it his flight it be experience, likely.
2: 150 yeah. hours, maybe? That's yeah. I don't know.
0: It's a possibility. How likely it is is another is another matter. However, if he was disoriented and crashed, there would be most likely, in most every case evidence of a crash right unless
2: it was the controlled landing item c right and he delicately put it down on the water <laughs> and then it right. peacefully sank with him inside of it well flotsam yeah there's no flotsam there's an oil slick not but not in the controlled landing there might not be
0: there might not oh be. right right if if he's planning again that goes to the take your own life scenario or he's trying to land controlled yeah uh he has a life vest on or maybe even yeah, a life try to get out but he didn't away. get out yes and where is he going to go to start a little life
2: yeah well he's going to float around in the water that doesn't make sense and here's the other thing with 150 hours he's going to land a plane with wheels on the water he's going to try that i don't know yeah Anyway, so that brings us to A, actually the first thing that they listed, UFO intervention. The words UFO, (laughs) UFO intervention. Keeping in mind what Forrest just said, even Valentich himself did not say the words UFO in his final transmission. So A, UFO intervention. No further comment apart from the observation that there were no sighting reports of a brightly illuminated craft large enough to take on board a Cessna 182. That's the whole sentence that follows that UFO intervention. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I read these backwards is because they put A, that was the first thing they put, not that these are necessarily in order of likelihood. But so they put UFO intervention for A, disorientation for B, controlled landing on the C for C, with the intention of escaping from the aircraft before it sank, D, successful landing elsewhere, E, crash while attempting D. In that order, the first thing they listed was UFO intervention. Okay, but then the reason that they say it can't be a UFO was because no one saw a UFO big enough to eat a Cessna, which is the dumbest thing <laughs> well, I've ever heard of in my life. All right, well,
0: because <laughs> that's, that's I mean, a very...
2: what? so now I mean, this is what uh, my wife is as a comedy writer calls the logic police. That's when you come and you're having like all kinds of problem with it. It's a flying car, and it's like you got a problem with the flying car and didn't have a problem with the talking pizza. Okay. Is that how UFOs work? It comes down and a thing comes, it's like Princess Leia's ship gets sucked up inside the Star Destroyer. And if it's not like that, then it can't have happened.
0: Now, come on. Wait, what about a collision? What about, what
2: about being zapped into another dimension? Come on. We don't know. Is You're, there they're air? They're
0: not thinking as sophisticatedly <laughs> as, as you are now, as we all know, that uh, the possibilities of a UFO encounter can entail yes. uh, some all kinds of weird uh, time, space, plastic reality morphing business. They're thinking very materialistically. Which they should.
2: I'm Brienne Napora from Colorado, and when I'm not cross-stitching cryptids, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
0: In this case, we've heard reports, though, I think it's Leslie Kane's book, with a lot of uh, government pilots. Uh, I remember one account of, I think it was an Iranian jet jockey, an Air Force pilot of theirs, who said he fired upon one. He was ordered to fire upon it. He said the bullets seemed like they just dissolved into it, just boop, boop,
2: boop. Mm -hmm. like nothing happened Mm
0: -hmm. you're talking probably about what you know 20 millimeter rounds big pieces of lead just getting sucked up at this thing or passing through it or something's happening where it's not affected so that's the outer thinking of what we know about ufos here they're they're just thinking like yeah did a big crane arm come out and and uh, scoop up his plane and then uh, put it in the hold and it flew off to uh alpha
2: centauri i think it's centauri but you know, I don't know. I don't whatever. Like
0: Stop! What are you, Chris? I,
2: this is not the time for this. We're almost done. Let's just let me just get through this. That's okay? Where they, get, they got uh, Robert Preston.
0: Well, uh, look, look. I'm going to go zap through a bunch of these points I I mentioned briefly uh, because again, I thought, uh, oh my gosh, do we have enough for
2: part one? Maybe it's just going to be. 60 minutes? Yeah, I had to talk you into multiple parts on this. I couldn't believe it. I know.
0: Uh, well, <laughs> I, look, you can always do something in, uh, in 35, 40 minutes. Certainly other shows do that, lot Mankey can.
2: He's got that gift, not us.
0: So uh, for us, though, uh, I was worried, like, are we going to have enough? So I, I not to let the can out of the bag, but I found some good uh, pointers here that I thought I could bookend talking about a narrative tool here on the end here about what I'm going to say here is I know I mentioned a few of these concurrent incidents around the time of Frederick Valentich's disappearance, but I I thought as we're wrapping up here and making our final observations, it would be good to do a quick recap of everything else that was going on in the vicinity. So uh, here's that rundown from UFO researcher Oz Weatherman on the above top secret forum. And I'm just repeating myself here because that's what old people do. Okay, so in the <laughs> weeks leading up to Valentich's disappearance and coinciding with it, more than fifty separate UFO incidents were reported in the area. Now I'm going to have to rely on Oz where the men, but again, these guys uh, spend a lot more time than I do looking at UFO reports, and yeah. that's how they find these things. That's how they dig up these these gems, as we're going to see here. Now, are all fifty incorrect misidentifications? That's a possibility, certainly, but if one or two are correct then something weird is going on. They don't all have to be true. One or two, or just one has to be true. That's right. So uh, more than 50 separate accounts were reported. Some of the reports around the time of the disappearance and in the weeks following include, as I mentioned before, twin cigar-shaped objects that were seen over Victoria, moving west to east, changing color from silver to white. Several witnesses reported uh, seeing this until this object disappeared behind the Cape Otway Hills. That's fascinating. Uh, Again, another disappearance behind the hills at Cape Otway. Uh, One witness actually photographed an object shooting up out of the water at tremendous speed near Cape Otway
2: Lighthouse. Is this anything that you kind of connected to uh, mentioning this? Yeah, no, I'm, I knew that you were going to, so I didn't. But yeah, yeah okay. uh, this is my thing. I'm telling you folks, everybody's like, oh, there's no way for interstellar travel and all this <laughs> stuff. Yeah, that's because they're coming out of the water, people. <laughs> they're, they're in to- the ocean they don't need to fly across dimensions and millions and billions of miles. They're here.
0: It coincides with my my wacky theory of uh, people talk about a hollow earth. Like, how is that possible? Look, the earth's got a molten nickel core. It's really hot down there. It's all solid. There's tectonic plate technology going on, all kinds of stuff happening. No place for big caverns. And I'm thinking like, well, what if we thought of below the earth's crust, below the mantle, the middle inner earth, as being another dimensional space. Let's
2: not lose the plot here.
0: <laughs> hey, come on. Hey, no, this, this this goes in with the idea here that these things are shooting up out of the water because this thing that shot up out of the water, and, and I don't know about this photograph. I thought uh, it was mentioned. I don't know where it is. Yeah, I couldn't find uh, what it. What happened to it? Yeah. But this happened 21 minutes before Valentich first called in reporting right. an object. Yeah. 21 minutes that supposedly happened where this guy took this photo. So again, I know it's not around. You can't verify this, but uh, it's interesting that there was a reporting of something popping out of the water. Yeah. There could be all kinds of things going on down there that we don't even know about. That's right. You, you wonder about uh, Andros Island. The U.S. Navy having their experimental base there. That's you always their... think
2: about all these submarines that are all over the world. One of the, the code of silence with submariners is extremely high. They don't talk yeah. about anything. And so if the, all these submarines that are down there, the intercontinental ballistic missile ones and the Russians have them, everybody's got them. No one is talking, but you know they're out there. If their sonar has picked up some kind of strange signature or whatever, we're never going to hear about it. We don't know what's going on in the ocean. Right and if all you need is a little doorway to fly in and out of you know what are the odds we're going to find it it's just i mean i know i'm i'm, I'm obviously yeah. taking a big leap here and i'm being a little bit cheeky about it but mm. i think that there are many more cases of usos becoming ufos or uaps unidentified right. aerial phenomena than people admit and i think that when you look at the big picture here you know not getting ahead of myself but when you look at the big picture of this area, and particularly at this time period, a lot of stuff was happening both above and below the waterline.
0: Absolutely, we we just don't know. It's a whole other world, in some ways, quite literally, to us. My my point is that the properties of being under the water why not coincide with outer space and wherever you think these things are coming and inner space and interdimensional space? It's all one thing. Here's a here's a crazy wild idea I heard about uh, USOs and how they move. Around the time that uh, James Cameron's movie came out, remember that? Sure. The Abyss. Yeah. Did you like it?
2: Yeah, loved it.
0: It was a side article, I think, maybe you know, put out there by the uh, the movie studios for publicity. But I was remembering, but I was remembering, uh, some, uh, I think, UFO researchers pondering how these things could move through the water, because as you know, there are physical limits. Now, if you're underwater, for a USO to move. You know, how a submarine moves, speaking of that, and that's what reminded me is that well, they have to displace water. They're pushing water around them using a propeller in the rear or some kind of uh what was it the worm? Caterpillar drive in Caterpillar October, drive. Yeah, which I think was Cobra. fabricated, but who knows? Caterpillar drive. Well, whatever it was, is that you have to displace the water around you. How a USO can move so fast is that they are basically Embodying it's really hard to explain. Wherever they're moving to, they are not pushing the water around them. They are just occupying the space that the water occurs ahead of them.
2: I'm not sure I can explain that any no better. <laughs> I don't think you can. We're gonna have to come back to this. I wish Rich was here to ask you questions about that. <laughs> After he fell out of his chair laughing. <laughs> <laughs> As you move
0: along, and imagine water. So, like like say if you wanted to move into the next room, instead mm-hmm. of like you tr- getting ahead of steam and you bursting through uh Kool-Aid man style into the next not. room. Yeah. Right. You just now assume physical space atoms in the next room in your shape.
2: Okay. So maybe the craft is partially. So you're made dematerializing out of water. and rematerializing? Is that what you're saying? But
0: consistently, constantly. Yeah. Right. If the ship was somehow somewhat made of water or right. or using the molecule using the molecules and the atoms of the water, you were moving through. That's why you're not actually moving water around you. Right. You are now somewhat in a, consistently materializing as you go along through the water. <laughs> there are things going on here and, and maybe the Bass Strait is another hot spot, like just off the coaster of Catalina which is another purported hotspot for USO activity. Well, getting back to the other things that were seen, two separate sets of witnesses reported seeing green lights and a starfish shaped object. That's a little weird. And there was a couple and then two teenagers and the couple part of the four witnesses here saw the object move over Bass Strait in the direction of where Valentich was flying. That's another connection, if you were to take their account seriously. But again, that's four people, two not connected to each other here. Uh, Witnesses, I think you mentioned this, in Frankston, a southeast Melbourne suburb, reported seeing a large cigar-shaped object hovering over the area. That's another corroboration of something long and cigar-shaped, matching possibly what Frederick said he saw. Yeah. The big one that we talked about in part one a lot, the four family members, again, describing that they had seen uh, a green light hovering just above the small private aircraft as it was heading towards the water and Bastrade at a 45 degree angle and then disappearing behind the hills near Cape Otway. So, is that him in distress? Is he being chased? Is he about to crash? is he about to be picked up by a giant crane hook from the other UFO? We don't know. Or just subsumed. Yeah. (laughs) Or or zapped into another dimension. We don't know. But it's interesting this other family comes forward later and you could say, well, they saw the news and uh, they wanted in on the publicity. Well, they didn't want to be named, certainly. And they were afraid if they came forward right as it happened, that they'd be ridiculed. And I'm sure some people are rolling their eyes now at them all these many years later. But... It is an interesting observation, eyewitness, and that's possibly what they described is actually seeing Frederick Valentich right there as it happened. So that's interesting. On the night of Valentich's disappearance, the Royal Australian Air Force received 11 reports of unidentified aerial phenomenon. Those I think are different than the other reports in that these were actually reported to the RAAF. Uh, right. And maybe in, into some kind of program that they have that's like Project Blue Book.
2: Yeah. And the long report that I read, he reported it to the RAAF. So, okay.
0: Yeah. Uh, that might be one of the 11. So, those are people that are serious enough that they're going to make an official report to a, uh, a military organization. Here's something, though, I want you to, and you chime in with any details or clarifications, okay? But referring back to Valentich's behavior. Uh, he behaved a little
2: oddly or out of character on or the night before the flight, correct? There's literally one statement about that, and it was from his, I can't remember if it was his girlfriend or his dad. Right. Well, one of them just said he was a little off the night before. That was it. No one else said anything weird. It's like okay. one sentence just to be I clear. remember
0: that as being yeah. uh, the girlfriend saying Yeah, he was I think a it little, was the uh, girlfriend,
2: Rhonda. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, uh, well, there you go. May- maybe
0: there were certainly a few things that didn't make sense. Maybe with things like his reporting of the passengers. Okay. And mm-hmm. so now we're looking at the odd things he did because those are puzzling and they need to be examined. His reporting of the passengers, which was not correct or mistaken or just a lie. But maybe more so uh, with his plans to take out girlfriend Rhonda on a date and the time at 7.30, he said he'd be back. He could not possibly
2: have kept that time. Yeah, that's the weird thing. But he could just be scatterbrained too. He could just be like, yeah, I'll be back. I'll be back at 7.30. I'm getting in the plane, you know. Here's a reason for that
0: scatterbraidedness. Yeah. In thinking of the strange mindset that Terry Lovelace described having before he and his friend Toby's ill-fated camping trip. Oh, yeah. Not bringing enough food or water. Warm clothing, forgetting getting a camera that he'd just gotten, that he was really excited to take pictures with, right? I, I believe he left that on the kitchen table. That's right. That's one of the purposes of going on this trip. I want to take photographs. Yeah. Simple things, like hot dogs and a can of beans. Like, what are we thinking? We don't have enough water. We'll have to get that later. These are really buttoned up guys. Now, they weren't experienced campers, but they're, they're smart guys, okay? They're two first responders. Now, why was this so out of character for them? Could it be that there was some kind of psychic connection, destiny for Frederick Valentich and his own incident with the forces or entity associated with it?
2: Yeah, and just quickly for folks that are following along at home, Forrest is making reference, and we have earlier in this episode, to episode 155 of our show. It's called Abduction at Devil's Den. It's the story of Terry Lovelace, who was uh, U.S. Air Force and was abducted. And he told us uh, what happened to him in that episode. So that's what uh, we're referring to right there.
0: People sometimes that have already been picked, you could say, for a future or upcoming encounter with a UFO. And I think a lot of uh, experiencers and abductees might agree with this and that there are things that happen to you mentally that seem to
2: predict this. Well, it's the mashed potatoes phase from close encounter. (laughs) right? Well, he's yeah, like, he's can, making the, they're all making Devil's Tower. They don't know why. No, I something. know that's a movie. It's yeah, fiction, right. but there is something that we see. I agree with you. We're seeing that in yeah. a lot of stories that we covered where, uh, this is a weird thing to say, but it's one of the things that we've learned about EVPs, at least with our dr 60 Sometimes the answer yeah. comes before the question. And sometimes right. these people start to come apart a little bit before the thing that happens to them.
0: Yes, so sometimes maybe there is some kind of connection that's jumbled in the timeline uh, from this timeline to uh, whatever timeline and how time works on the other side. You are seeing and experiencing things that are lining up or maybe it's a welcome message in a sense that as your destinies are lining up with this event, you're getting thrown off a little bit. And so he's not remembering certain things like uh, Rhonda's date. He's uh, got the lobster thing, the crayfish thing mixed up. The passengers, things aren't kind of you know. There's some things are kind of off. He seemed a little bit off, I think, as she reported the night before. Total speculation, of course, but I just made that connection to Terry forgetting simple things and not behaving completely normally for himself or Toby. Well, and then one of the last things here, which we found that was interesting, uh, Scott, was that uh, in looking at other similar incidents from just a, you know a few years, within a few years of the occurrence of the Valentich disappearance. Now, this is one just two years after, on June 28th, 1980. This is something that uh, UFO researcher Carl 12 made a post about in the above top secret forums here. What's even more remarkable about this incident is that there is a recording of the pilot's last radio transmission, which is available on YouTube. It's a little garbled and I think with the accents, uh, it's a little hard to understand. We might, if uh, Sarah can clean up a line here, maybe we'll get the most dramatic one in here. But uh, this is a disappearance that happens in the Mona Channel in the Caribbean Ocean near Puerto Rico, uh, June 28, 1980, at 18:10 or about 6:10 p.m. in the evening. Jose Antonio Maldonado Torres and his friend Jose Pagan Santos took off from Las Americas International Airport in Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic in an Air coupe aircraft marked N-388H. So the aircraft was owned by Jose's father, and he was an aero police officer in Puerto Rico. So they were going home to Puerto Rico. At 8.03 p.m., the Las Mesas radar site and several aircraft picked up radio transmissions from N-388H. And this is a lot more serious. They are saying, Mayday, Mayday, Coupe, Ocho, Cero, 800 Hotel. We can see a strange object in our course. We are lost. Mayday, Mayday. what happens is that a nearby plane, an Iberia Airlines flight, IB-976, coming from Santo Domingo to Spain, uh, responded to the mayday, and they got a reply from the, the small passenger plane saying, uh, we are going from Santo Domingo to uh, San Juan International, but we found a weird object in our course that made us change course about three different times. We got it right in front of us now at one o'clock. Our heading is zero, 070 zero degrees. Our altitude is 1,600, a zero seven zero degrees. Our VORs got lost off frequency. VOR being the uh, very high frequency VHF, omnidirectional range fighter on a plane. <laughs> They're saying that there's, their directional finders are screwed up. They're lost now. This thing is keeping in front of them. They they can't get away from it. And so the Iberian flight relayed a message to San Juan Center saying uh, to the passenger plane, turn on your transponder. And they said, well, our plane's not equipped with one. So they said, well, where are you? The Iberian plane, uh, passenger plane, trying to get a fix on their position. And they said, "Uh, right now we are supposed to be about 35 miles from the coast of Puerto Rico, but we have something weird in front of us that makes us lose course all the time. I change our course a second with an unintelligible word, and it goes back, our present heading right now is 300, and we are right again, and the same stuff, sir. And that was the last they were ever heard of. That plane disappeared. But they were picked up on radar." unlike Valentich. At 8.12, the Atlantic Fleet weapons range verified the last radar position of N-388H as three five miles west of Puerto Rico, as they said. Santos' father, they mounted a search. Nothing was ever found. No trace was ever found, as the report goes. So, There you go. Uh, Somebody replying to that post, he calls himself the coward, was, uh, I guess he was a child in Puerto Rico in those, uh, in the 1980s into the mid-90s. And he said, that was a hotspot. He said, during that time, it was like a daily occurrence to have a sighting, like an infestation. It also coincides with the rise of the chupacabra sighting. So... (laughs) Another tear, yeah, tear the fabric. Who knows, you know? So, but he says he was little there. He also remembers a huge military presence on the island at the time. So, who knows? But it's pretty weird. And then, Scott, we found uh, uh, an incident of a report of two U.S. military jets disappearing near Puerto Rico.
2: Yeah, that was supposed to be Tomcats that disappeared in an encounter. And there's a very detailed story out there about that that a UFO researcher from Puerto Rico is reporting on on YouTube. But you know what, we dug into it and uh, found some forums with some retired Air Force guys. And they were just like, there's just no way there is no yeah. corroboration. No Tomcats went missing. We all know it's a small community. I was based there. We read like a six page thing. Just so you know, we do still look through stuff and try to make <laughs> sure there's some veracity to it. And right, that one wasn't worth sharing. It didn't have any meat on it. So But it's out there. It's very, like, it's propagated a lot. and Everyone tells it. It's an urban legend at this point. I would say it's in that category.
0: There could have been 100 or 200 Puerto Ricans who saw something weird. It just didn't result in the disappearance, actually, of two
2: jet fighter craft. So yeah, but also those people weren't interviewed or present in anywhere. So, you know, it's different from like Amelia Earhart being in Saipan. Those people were all interviewed. This was just 100 people saw it. Okay, that's true. Where are they? (laughs) All right. Well, uh, let's
0: steer this then back to the rational, to the common sense explanations, right? Yeah, absolutely. And therefore, we look to James McGaha. hope I'm saying that right, and Joe Nichols' explanation from the Skeptical Inquirer, mystery solved once again. Indeed. They are just knocking these uh, mysteries down one by one. Yes. As they say here, and I believe this is from their report, a computer search of the sky for the day, time, and place of Valentich's flight reveals that the four points of bright light he would almost certainly have seen were the following. Venus, which was at its very brightest, Mars, Mercury, and the bright star Antares. These four lights would have represented a diamond shape, given the well-known tendency of viewers to connect the dots, and so could have well been perceived as an aircraft or UFO. Fred Valentin's UFO has now been identified. That is, we can show that a group of four bright lights, consistent with his description, was within his sight at the time he was reporting his UFO. This is the long-missing piece of the puzzle that (laughs) awaited solving because the case required expertise from astronomy as well as aeronautics. I don't mean to be facetious. Yes, I guess I do. Uh, The identification underscores the inescapable fact that the disappearance was simply a fatal crash, ironically. It might never have occurred, but for the young pilot's fascination with UFOs. Wow, you can tell they dug deep on this. They must have spent <laughs> at least 15 or 20 minutes coming up with that. <laughs> if he wasn't such a UFO nut, he wouldn't have been bedazzled by the, the sight of stars and planets and crashed his plane,
2: Right, not knowing what he was doing. Never said the word UFO in his transmissions.
0: <laughs> now, I will say it is the job, and I suppose expected, of Mr. Nickel and, uh, and again, Mr. James McGaha. To come up with an answer. They can't
2: just say like, well, that's a weird one. Move on to the next thing. People are saying, come on. I mean, I I don't understand why (laughs) stars up in the sky, way far away, can be confused as something flying in circles around your aircraft and coming and going and having a shiny metal surface. It's
0: just ridiculous. It's pretty much, it's the Stariel explanation. Are you even trying Uh,
2: when you come up with these? But that's all they got. Like, I could come up with, that's what I'm saying. I could come up with better, even in the report when they say, yeah. Take all this away, right? I'm not going to do right. a lot. You're really covering stuff very well here, so I'm not going to do a lot of additional stuff. But here's one <laughs> thing I will say. Yeah, okay. The guy took, and we know, he took four life jackets with him. Right. Whether it was subterfuge, where he was trying to pretend he was picking up passengers... Or he just wanted to be prepared to pick up passengers. Maybe he had friends who were like, hey, you want to come back with me? Whatever. Or it was a cover-up because he wanted to bring back crayfish. Whatever. He had four life jackets with him. If that aircraft crashed into the oceans, they are going to escape the aircraft. And you know what they're going to do? Float. Yeah. Not a single life jacket ever found. If you've ever been anywhere near a life jacket, worn one, Mm -hmm. had a canoe, capsize, whatever, you know what they do? They float around. They turn up on the beach. They turn up. And these beaches, these are beautiful beaches where people are, they're going all the time, Cape Otway, whatever. There's a huge search going on. If anything had turned up from that plane and if it crashes into the water, yeah, the door's gonna come off. The windows are gonna open up. All four of those life jackets, including the one on his own body, are just gonna stay inside the plane and never turn up. It doesn't make sense. Yes. So here's what I would say to those guys. If it crashed, where's the oil slick? Where's the airplane? Where are the life jackets? Where's the body? Where is any of it? None of it is yeah. anywhere, and all you've got is this cow that was found at the end of a runway next to an airport, three hundred miles away, that walked right. across the ocean. No, I'm just—it's <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> you've had enough, sir. I have well, had enough, uh,
0: sir. <laughs> It's their job. It's like uh, uh, M Night. People are expecting a twist, man. You better have a good twist for us. He's referring to folks. M Night Shyamalan. Yeah, Shem yeah. yeah. Shemalan yeah. I, I still filmmaker. Really you gotta you gotta be more that. specific.
2: Yeah, sometimes I think we're a little too familiar. You no,
0: know, because I realized that uh, I may have been mispronouncing his name all these years, um, and I, I think not it's I think you
2: know. Yeah, there's
0: other letters in there that I'm not pronouncing. So my point being is that, like with the six sense, there's a twist. All his movies now have to have a twist. These two gentlemen, Mr. Gaha and especially Joe Nickel, have to come up with an, a rational explanation. People are expecting it. You can't just walk away and say, I don't know, that sounds pretty magical. They can only go so far. So it's like with owls, you know, with the goblins there and Kelly Hopkinsville owls is the best and furthest thing that he can go to. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm saying he can't say they're ghost owls. He can't say they're goblin owls. Right. He can't say there are mechanical owls, a uh Clash of the Titans. He's got to say regular old owls. And and then the other leap here, as you see with this explanation, is that then the other leap is that people are really way off. People who kind of know their business, like these are people who live, uh, you know, they they live on the land, they're farmers. They don't know what an owl looks like. Yeah, you're going to have to stretch that rubber band between those two ideas. Here, now it's like, okay, I got your owl, which is the four lights. Really tiny lights. Not even at night. And maybe possibly seen in the late, late, late afternoon before it gets dark. Maybe you could see them in the blue sky
2: still. Yeah, they're not even taking into account that it it wasn't quite dark yet. I know. They're not even talking about that. Between those two ideas that this kid who's really been
0: studying flying a lot... And as Chris said, he's got 150 hours. It's not a tremendous amount, but it's not nothing either that this kid doesn't even know what the planets and the stars look like now. Suddenly he's baffled by them. He flies the plane upside down and crashes in the water because he he wants to believe that they're UFOs. Yeah. Mr. Nichols here has to stretch that rubber band of belief to get to the next uh, thumbtack here, which is that's what happened. Case closed. Yeah. Not considering everything else because you can't, you can't consider all this other stuff because then you're, you're, then you're in that camp right, of crazy town. So uh, here we go. This is my last statement before we get to this last bit of uh, really interesting um, media, you could say. Yes. You know, in light of all these events and from what we've learned looking into this case, it's my estimation that the Frederick Valentich event was just one of many encounters with UFOs or unknown aerial phenomena, if you like that were going on in the region and in the decade. And I believe we're going to enter into another wave soon. I'll make that prediction right here. Mm. Just, I don't know if it doesn't happen. I mean, who's going to remember <laughs> this? We're, seriously, come on. Like you, you said it was going to happen in the, in the 2021s and it never did. It might be happening already. We don't know. It takes a while for these things to kind of surface and bubble up. But as we've been seeing in the news, small things are bubbling up. And we have so much media, these things don't stand out as much as they used to. So maybe there is a wave going on right now. And it won't be for another few years till we start to put the pieces together. Well, and whether you find it interesting or not, or you, you think it's important or not, or whether you like it or not, I believe maybe in less than 180 days, we're all going to have to accept the fact that UFOs are a reality, no matter their origin. And once we do that, then we're going to have to accept the implications of that reality. Well
2: said. Well, I the, uh, the military yeah. is expecting us a mass panic, oh. right? Government's overthrown, collapse of society and civilization when that happens. <laughs> well, before we wrap up tonight, an, an interesting thing happened while we were talking to Chris about the possibility of that tape existing that had the final conversation between Valentich and Roby, the air traffic controller or the Australian version of that. It turns out that a piece of that may be out there in the world. We're just going to go back to a quick little chunk of our interview with Chris regarding that. So during the
1: flight, of course, as we've just touched on, he's harassed by a strange object that he variously describes in the contact with the tower as an aircraft, not an aircraft, a metallic object. He seems to have engine trouble and is seemingly that the object buzzes him in some way. It's very close. And of course, the last 17 seconds of his transmission environment the airport tower is a strange metallic scraping sound, which, you know, I've heard it, it's available. I think it's legitimate, the sound that's online. And I mean, you could say it's weird. You could uncharitably suggest that it's a microphone being rubbed against the jumper. But it's interesting. It's not something you would normally hear on a transmission like that.
2: Can you send that to us? Because we have not heard it. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I'd be very interested in hearing that. But we do Do we know the veracity of the source for it? Because the record, right? The only recording that the only copy of the recording went to Guido, to his dad, right? So where, where would yeah, that the have only, come from? The
1: only copy we know of went yeah. to Guido because he requested through Freedom of Information, he talked to the Department of Transport and said, hey, please, yeah. I would love to have the last transmission of my son. And they said, yeah, if you can have it so long as you don't release it. Right. And he was like, no, I won't. And he kept his word. He never did. But yes, he did get a, a what we presume was a compact cassette recording um, of a Philips-type compact cassette. My understanding is that an insider of the Department of Transport copied this sound and gave it to a UFO researcher.
2: Just the sound, not the recording? Just not the, the sound,
1: not the whole recording. Wow. Yeah.
2: I just saw a clip
0: of Stephen Roby, the uh, uh, air yeah. traffic advisor. Uh, Mm. who was in communication. And what's fun is that he's in the Unsolved Mysteries episode as a younger man. And then of course now, (laughs) many a few decades later, you can see him Mm. talk about it. And what he describes is an electronic clicking sound. Mm. It's a little different than the scraping. But again, if you take it apart, it's like, I'm not sure if he's misremembering it or if it was some kind of combination between scraping and clicking, just an odd sound. But obviously, you know, he's listened to maybe tens of thousands at that point radio calls and transmissions, and he's, mm. I'm sure, heard everything that can come out of a cockpit. And to him, mm-hmm. though, he's maintaining that no, this was so strange. I don't even know what it is.
2: Well, after we wrapped up with Chris, he did, in fact, send that to us, and we're about to play it. It's going to be the last thing you're going to hear tonight before we end the show. There are some interesting things to listen for. We had posted it into our private Facebook group and a lot of people were struck by it because this is the last transmission that theoretically came from him and people are trying to figure out what it is. Is it a metal scraping sound? You know, we fabricated something in part one. Our sound designer did that, Ryan. But this is the real deal. And we have plenty of reason to believe that this is actually taken from the actual recording, which we now have confirmation through the research that is out there somewhere, even though we haven't heard it. So there's no reason to believe that this section was fabricated. The question is, what are we hearing here? His girlfriend Rhonda said, well, he would rub the microphone on his shirt every time before he would talk. She said that he would rest the mic in his lap, and sometimes when he was moving around, his legs would depress the button. He was tall, so he would slide the chair back so he had better access to the controls. So there's that stuff. There are other people that will say, I hear voices in this, which I didn't directly hear, but they're saying that they could hear muted versions of the voices And or that it sounds a lot like a radio going Mm -hmm. underwater and receiving transmissions, which Forrest and I talked about and pointed out that that's not the sound you would hear on the other end of the conversation. It's the sound you would hear in the cockpit as the cockpit went underwater. But I don't know, because he's certainly not going to be talking through water bubbles as the plane sinks.
0: No, but, you know, unless the mic's open, if he's underwater, then it's shorting out the radio, most likely. Right. That's not something else to consider. The plane's electrical, so it's not going to work well underwater, nor is it meant to. The other thing, though, is that there are several possibilities going on here to consider, which makes it uh, ultimately fascinating. Yeah, I kind of heard what sounded like maybe Valentich talking. Because think of it this way, what is
2: he still trying to do? He's still trying to relay information if he's still d- in the, the air information, yeah and not incapacitated, he's still trying yeah. to relay information and they're trying to relay
0: information to him. They need to know uh and he knows from procedure that he needs to respond or they're going to start a whole search operation for him right He knows that's what's coming next. There's a few minutes that pass where you're you're wondering uh, you want to get a health report back from the plane. If Melbourne FSU doesn't hear anything after a few minutes, after his last transmission, that initiates a search phase or a rescue, or an emergency phase. So uh, he knows that's going to happen. He needs to respond. Plus, I imagine he's trying to describe what's happening to him right now. Because what we've not heard yet, which we've heard in the Puerto Rican transmission, is Mayday, Mayday. That's when you know, I'm going down this is bad. You better send somebody. That's right. Not that, no, this is just kind of weird still. I'm trying to figure out what this is. He has not said mayday yet. So is he about to get into real trouble? Is that what's happening now? Is he incapacitated or is he trying to relay a message and the message is electromagnetically being altered,
2: filtered, interfered with? In that way, you cannot hear what he's trying to say. Here's one final thing I want to say. Even if this aircraft does turn up someday, it doesn't necessarily mean that because it crashed that this encounter didn't happen. Right. And so just finding the plane isn't enough to solve this mystery necessarily. It might be. It might be that when right. they investigate the aircraft, and say, oh, this failed, that failed, whatever. But again, why did it fail? Why did it? You know, we already have these stories right there in Australia and even Tasmania where people are saying this craft was over me and I couldn't start my vehicle or the engine died yeah. or it wouldn't turn over. If that happens on an airplane, if it's not of a design where it can glide, there's all kinds of things. And they can tell all that when a plane goes down. They can tell whether the prop was spinning or these other kinds of things. So the investigation would go further. But again, notably, we don't have any wreckage. But I want to be clear that I'm not staking my entire position on what happened here on whether or not a wrecked plane will ever be found. That's not going to solve this mystery necessarily. It could, but it also might not. Exactly.
0: (laughs) I thought exactly. So the last thing that I would like to consider, and I hope some folks out there will as well, is that uh, the other possibility when you hear this sound is that one, it could be the sound of whatever it is that's happening to Frederick Valentich. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? That's actually what he was hearing outside his aircraft as whatever... Weird phenomenon was happening to him, or this force was being exerted on him. That's what it sounded like. And maybe he had the mic open, or that's just what got transmitted through the radio waves overpowering the the radio. Maybe he didn't have the mic open. Maybe that's what just was transmitted as an overpowering electromagnetic force. The other option or scenario, or one of several, is that this is the sound that object makes in some way is that some transmission they're making? Are they putting out that signal? And that's what it sounds like. And we just can't understand it. That maybe there sounds like a, a voice in there. Maybe that's overpowering Frederick's voice on the radio transmission. And it's being overpowered by a transmission of this object that's doing their thing. And maybe we don't understand. It. So that's fascinating to me. It's like, it's like hearing an alien voice. Imagine what that's like. Yeah, or an alien, uh, you know, spaceship. And I guess, yeah, tonight, uh, you know, I I am saying that uh, I think that there are ships from other places other than the Earth or Earth-made or human-made that are buzzing around. I think at this point, it's becoming pretty obvious that something's going on. You can't deny that anymore. As the scientists have, have said, space has a sound. Now, of course, you can't hear it. There's no air to transmit that sound. But radio waves coming in from space from uh, energetic bodies. If you transmute that, it creates noise that we can hear with our ears, right? Just Google that. In fact, I'm gonna write that down here. Noise from space to put on the webpage. If you take that pattern and you turn that into analog audio waves, it creates a noise. So what I was um, trying to uh, relate to Scott, because we used to be video editors and anybody who's worked with uh, Videotape will know, in trying to gain meaning from this, it's like, uh, you know, when you put a a videotape in, there's time code. So you know what every frame uh, is in a relationship to time running. And you can see that on the readout. What it is, is an audio track. It's not actually a, a, a clock on the tape. It's an audio track that makes a noise. If you plug a cord into that and you plug it into a speaker, it goes, it makes this noise, which just sounds like chirping. But What my point is, is that if you plug it into another machine, it's actually numbers running and it's time and it makes sense. So maybe there's a
2: way to take this sound one day and make sense of it. Okay, folks, here we go. And we're going to leave you with this tonight. Stand by to hear an actual recording of the sounds picked up at the end of Frederick Valentich's last transmission before he and his aircraft disappeared without a trace over 44 years ago. It's going to wrap up our series on the disappearance of Frederick Valentich. A very special thanks again to Christopher Tyler for his appearance. We're dark the next two weeks, but we'll be back the week after that with a new show.
0: Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket
2: Fortiana. Special thanks to John Boland. Hi. B R E.
0: Hi. In galaxy wide in perpetuity. In perpetuity. Galaxy wide O R A V. Thank you.
2: Our show is edited by Sarah voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our Head of Research.
0: Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at AstonishingLegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.
2: You can also support the show at patreon.com/astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.